Hey, did you know this podcast has a Patreon? At patreon.com slash scaries. you can support the podcast for as little as a dollar and get early access to episodes and join in on community posts with all the other hosts and me. Uh, patreon.com slash scaries. Get out there and do it. Thanks. So I, I filmed this movie called The Senior, and I played this racist cowboy that comes in and has this scene with uh, Michael Chiklis. Oh, I remember hearing on the podcast. You yeah. said he, he kind of was a little rough. Well, he well, I mean, it's a... It's a, it's a Sunday scaries. And everybody really does have their own style. Like like Clint Eastwood apparently never stops the camera. He just lets you just kind of go into it and then go right, right back into it when you're ready. Then, you know, Fincher's known as the 99 take guy. Right, That'll just right. make you eat a bite of pizza 99 times. I, just like, someone who I worked with a, a mixer who came from uh, L.A. down to Dallas to shoot some to do some stuff. And he was saying his buddies in the union work Eastwood gigs. And he was like, they're eight hour days. He's like, Eastwood doesn't have time for bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, we shoot it. He like, He's like down to the thing. He kind of knows exactly what they're doing. His producers have them like on track. It's like a train. And he like he's like yeah they'll take a one hour lunch do another like four or five hours and then Eastwood's out he's gonna go hit the golf course he's Fuck like yeah. they're he's like a lot of times they're eight hour days which can be bad oh yeah you're not getting on what, what you're getting yeah you but to. Eastwood's just like he gets it and he's like I'm moving on I don't need backups like, wow I don't I don't give a shit unions love him they do I, mean, I that's probably part of the reason why he keeps he still making movies is because yeah. he's so un, he's under budget and he's like under time but it's because yeah. he just he's like all right i think that's it and moves on oh man that's the way to do it but yeah. he's had his crew for 20 plus years now those oh, people yeah. run like a machine he's like they have they see the setups they have throughout the day and lighting is already like two setups ahead wow they that's like awesome. they kind of intuit here's what eastwood's probably gonna have the blocking is gonna yeah. be and here's what it's gonna feel like i i've been lucky i haven't been on too many I haven't been on any like shit show sets. Yet. Right. I've been on ones that I feel like for the most part really have their shit together. I've had ones where like some day might be a shit show. Like they just get behind and they're just like endlessly just like screaming at each other. And as a yeah. boom, I'm like, I'm tiny and little. I don't matter in this con- inconsequential universe. Like you guys go fight and I'm just going to be present for what happens. Literally a yeah. fly on the wall. Yeah. 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 Hey, um, uh, it's Sunday Scaries, guys. <laughs> What's up? Uh, hey, oh, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm Travis. I'm hanging out with. I'm Daniel. And Blake. Hell yeah. What's it's a up, podcast guys? about horror movies where each week we take a deep dive into a specific film and try to find connections between that film and other movies within the genre. In this series of episodes, we're leaning into psychological horror and unraveling the mystery of what's come to be known as elevated horror. This week, we watch possibly uh, the only entry in the horror catalog by a filmmaker who's kind of set the precedent for uh, gatekeeping uh, high cinema, I guess. Yeah, we can discuss the merits <laughs> of him. I will better discuss or it. Twitter is a flame over this. I know. It's oh, what oh, is yeah. the, what is the headline? Uh, every time Scorsese or Tarantino is in the headlines, it's because they said something accurate about film and everybody's angry about it. They're, which they're both doing. <laughs> Well, Tarantino's doing press right now for a book he wrote, so he's yeah. like all over my goddamn social media. I'm like, stop sharing stuff about him. I don't care. <laughs> right. Uh, but what movie did we watch this week, guys? Shutter, Shutter Island. So this prisoner escapes in the last 24 hours. We don't know how she got out of her room. It's as if she evaporated straight through the walls. We haven't heard the truth once yet, but no one will talk. He's like this scared of something. It's all down, all the lines, even radio. Whatever the hell's going on here, it's bad. We need to ask you some questions, okay? Yeah, that was great. That was a good that one, guys. I, that's one of my top three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Shutter Island, 2010, directed by the man himself, Marty, mm-hmm. Martin Scorsese, uh, written by uh, Leira Calogridis. Yeah. Is that the best pronunciation? I, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Uh, yeah. Based on a novel by Dennis Lehane. Uh, uh, which, for reference, if anyone's curious why we say the author's name, they are the, she is currently the showrunner and creator of Netflix's Altered Carbon, a uh, show you might be familiar with. Oh, circa yeah. 2019, I think. Um, and apparently is out to contract and make the live-action adaptation of Sword Art Online for any of you anime fans That's out there. That's going to be fascinating. Ooh. But uh, you can see the connection. Altered Carbon, Sword Art Online. But she, she has a, a couple of screenplays in her past, so... Yeah, this wow. was a man. Shutter Island was one that I, I kind of like threw in sort of willy nilly here. Uh, I thought it was a the, bold choice. I wasn't sure if yeah. it was horror. It's, yeah, I, yeah. I think it walks that line. As I was watching it, I was kind of trying to like pick out the moments where I think it leans enough into its elements to be horror, kind of. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a th- like a noir thriller, yeah. at least, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think some of the weirdness that they employ with the various inmates and patients of the hospital kind of I think pull it enough in the horror direction but I think that's the thing with this this series that we're doing on psychological horror is that the elements of psychological horror aren't many times what we think of classically as like belonging to the genre right um on their face at least what do you think when you think of psychological horror Blake psychological horror just off the dome oh man just movies or like ideas I know. I'm well. I was trying to talk to somebody about this the other day, and I couldn't. He asked me that, and I couldn't really think of anything off the top of my head. Yeah, because it's like there's so many movies that deal with like psychosis as as like a element of it, but then it's like it actually ends up being like a demon or possession or something like that. So it's yeah. really like it kind of takes a backseat to what's really happening. I'm trying to think of like psychological horror. No, I mean, like I mean, like I don't know why this came to my mind immediately, but like uh, Gothica. Yeah. yeah, yeah, with Halle Berry. It like, just I don't... might be on the list. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's the first thing that just popped in my mind, and I don't know why. But because the whole thing takes place in a in a psych ward. Yeah, you know, like because there's aside from like the obvious, you know, with movies like this one that are set in you know mental institutions or which are I guess you know as a trope have become inherently Literally psychological. Yeah, they become inherently scary just by by definition. And I think this movie does a really good job of sort of hearkening back to the origins of that and the very legitimate reasons why yeah. um especially in this in the time period in which this movie is set uh they can be scary places or you know places where bad things happen and your relationship with reality can also be brought into question right um yeah this is uh so 2010 martin scorsese leonardo dicaprio mark ruffalo we got michelle williams in here uh the fantastic max von Sydow. we got ben oh. kingsley a fucking murderer's row man truly this is uh this and is... even the even the like second tier actors fucking are all, ted like, levine yeah, is in there. phenomenal character actors Elias I Codius. Like. Oh, yeah man. i'd watch all their stuff yeah it's a this was a like i said I, I plugged this in as like a like a blockbuster kind of one that i think touches enough on the horror genre that at least it fits into um the theme of the episodes that we're watching in this series. Uh, and I think it pairs nicely with, uh, with some of the other movies that we've been watching. Well, so like what's the budget on this thing? Cause it's a pretty lavish production. Yeah. So it was $80 million, uh, in 2010, <gasps> right? Yeah. Yeah. And it ends up making most of its money back worldwide. It ends up at about $300 million, just just shy of, yeah. um, but this is also the era, man. So the golden age of like Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, oh, yeah, here for sure. in between golden ages, ages. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This, the one of three decade run. Here. I don't know. One of the, one of the many peaks, 
apex of his career, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But, but there definitely was like a like a late two thousands, early ten twenty tens like little golden era. Yeah. Where he was just I think he had some something like every stuff. other year from twenty two thousand eight all the way up to like 2016 or yeah i mean even just leading up to the to this movie right so in 2006 uh we have two releases in the same year blood diamond and the departed right uh revolutionary road in 2008 um in 2010 we have shutter island and And inception inception Inception, uh so he gets to work with scorsese and christopher nolan back to back in the same like you know fucking on good year share share some of that talent like seriously we all deserve a little little more stop hoarding all this serious bastard i'm 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 just offering this on all of our behalves not just blake's but like come on man <laughs> right i have i have this same feeling every time i like you know because i do voiceovers too yeah and i i every time i see like matthew mcconaughey on like another voice commercial and you're like I'm come on like, man you, you bastard you don't need that money let you me have that money stranger it's like, like come on man but even yeah even the years after this right so jay edgar comes out in 2011 where he plays j edgar hoover uh django unchanged is in 2012 where he yeah. plays calvin candy and then the great gatsby and wolf of wall street come out in 2013 so wait he, he must have been in his 30s when he did all this right? yeah so he's 42 se- now yeah so he's born in 1974 yeah. so he's like yeah um yeah he would have been they would have shot a lot of this like now. 2000 2002 to 2008 essentially yeah it's, they're all coming out like a year or two after they shot it yeah so he would have been like close to it like late 20s all early 30s mid to mid 30s mm-hmm. yeah when you have like the time and energy you're at your peak like I know what I like doing and I don't want to do anything else, but I'm going to work at this really, really hard. And then he like, he peaks and he's like, all right, I don't have to do as much stuff anymore. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting seeing his relationship with Scorsese evolve too over that decade, right? So starting with Gangs of New York um, in the movie 2002. movie that famously almost bankrupted the Weinstein Company. Yeah. Oh with which yeah. weirdly too says as we were getting ready to watch uh or to record this episode right i watched shutter island and then i was going back through and kind of watching catching up with my scorsese which is not, not an easy task those movies are fucking long like <laughs> all of his yeah um uh, i remember we didn't get all the way through the aviator because i put it on and i remember it not being like my favorite collaboration of theirs and yeah. it's also kind of just a difficult movie to get there's through. some movies that are a little more chore than yeah than challenge or like task than joy mm-hmm. um like That's, hugo is a beautiful movie but i'm also uh, like okay, okay yeah. i've yeah, seen it i put that on because i i couldn't remember if i had watched it or not and that one also exactly does kind of like it has that effect on you it's like really gorgeous and he did a lot a of interesting things movie. but the plot kind of like doesn't stick in your brain yeah you're like yeah Wait, what happened again that's exactly that was my exactly my response yeah. to it. I was like, I forget anything that happens in this movie, but it is very pretty to have on in the background. Right. Um, Ironically, I'll mention those two. Those are probably the the two that I haven't seen. Aviator and, and Hugo. Hugo. Yeah. Aviator is. I mean, it's wild because it's a true story. You're like, yeah. wow. Yeah. Very little of this is <laughs> embellished. And yeah. This is psychotic. We. This is dangerous. Like what happened? What Howard Hughes was? We were like, he needed to be treated. Like that man needed therapy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. But he was too rich for therapy. And Hugo's cool too because there's a grain of truth in there. But mm-hmm. if you don't know it it just the movie is just like one long pan, panacea to film the, the glorious early days of george Melier and yeah film and- the weird thing with the aviator for me was actually like one of my least favorite kate blanchett roles like her as his uh like yeah. texan wife or whatever oh, like it's yeah. they're the whole interplay i don't know they're just i i didn't see the chemistry between leon dicaprio and kate blanchett in that movie and it it really kind of bummed <laughs> me out i don't know, I don't know. Hmm. um but the departed man we watched the departed again oh. and you know we went through 
watching The Departed and Goodfellas. And what like, do they the, say? Like men have like ten personalities. Yeah. It's like quotes from Borat, the Departed <laughs> quotes, and like Talladega Nights or like a Will Ferrell movie. Yeah. <laughs> like men only have three personalities. It's Anchorman, Borat, or The Departed. Oh but my that god, that's so true. In like. I wanted to compare that one, his role in that one, to the role in this one, right? Because you could argue that of, like, the noir, you know, thriller right. kind of aspect of Scorsese's filmmaking, like, that one is, is not a large leap from uh, Shutter Island. Right. And I think that DiCaprio's role in The Departed is is much more expert we do casting. Have to, I feel like it's it's important to be clear, too, is The Departed is, a, is an American remake of mm-hmm. uh, the Internal Affairs trilogy. It's a Chinese film, a trilogy. And it is, like, beat for beat a remake of a Chinese film. So, like, Scorsese is not inventing this movie True. from scratch. He is, huh. you know, he adding saw his, it adding his own twist it. On, yeah. onto it. Yeah. And they, they transplanted it in such a way it felt so special and unique. But mm-hmm. every time I talk to, like, some friends who are real deep in that world, they're like, well, you should go watch Internal Affairs. I'm like, oh, shit, you're right. <laughs> I'm I definitely going to probably right. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely going to now. now yeah, if you like, like The Departed, imagine it being, like, more stylized. It's like oh, okay. A lot, of, a lot of crazy things happening there. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Right on. Yeah, um, yeah that, that leads us into Shutter Island, where DiCaprio and Scorsese teaming up again with uh, DiCaprio in play, playing a, a cop again or a, a U.S. To the point where DiCaprio's case. production company is helping make this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just him being an actor. He's, like, you know, actively funding and sharing and, like, I guess more funding than anything, but, like, helping get this thing produced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but Shutter Island in the 1950s, U.S. Marshal Teddy Daniels, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, investigates the disappearance of a patient from a remote hospital for the criminally insane. Uh, with the help of his partner, Chuck, played by Mark Ruffalo, Teddy discovers that the secluded institution may be hiding a dark secret as he is driven to find both the missing patient and another prisoner who may be responsible for the death of his wife. Ooh. See, that's a good that's a good summary. Yeah, it I is. Yeah. I stopped. <laughs> Did you write that? Uh, yeah, I wrote oh, that. Wow. But we have, a, we have a problem with the IMDb summaries because I... they're hilariously... Uh, concise. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's so fun. I get so mad at IMDb summaries. I'm like, you make a good movie sound shitty. Well, because they're, they're not Straight necessarily up. trying to pitch the movie. What is this IMDb? In 19, 1954, a U.S. marshal investigates the disappearance of a murderer who escaped from a hospital for the criminally insane. Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> Actually, yeah. kind of interesting. But still doesn't really tell you much about the movie. Yeah. Yours yeah. is much more in-depth. Well, the sets, peop- sets the stage. There we go. Like, I just think it's like a, it. one more task a production office assistant has to do when they make a movie. And so they're like, I don't know, copy, paste, whatever the hell that someone sent me. I'm like, give me just a two-sentence summary that like lights my fire. And I like everything should be that way. But Also, for the purposes of our podcast, like, you know, we're going to get into talking about the plot anyway. So We're so far into the um, weeds already. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, that's why I was like, I might as well introduce a podcast about 15 minutes in. I'm going to have to cut out. You can, yeah, I cut that <laughs> early 12 minutes. As I was editing the It Follows episode, like I shaved a half an hour off that episode, and it was still two and a half hours I'm, long. I'm getting oh old. God. I'm like rambling on this podcast. Oh, I'm you're sorry, fine. Blake. No, no, it's no, okay. It's, that's what it's I for. It. That's what I'm here for, too. So we started kind of talking about Scorsese. Uh I don't know if we've uh, so like professed our general opinion on him though as a as a director and Ooh. filmmaker uh, individually. I he wants what, takes. Yeah, I want your wants takes. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hunting for here, Daniel. What is your uh, What is your perspective on Scorsese and uh, Blake? What is your perspective <laughs> in a tweet <laughs> in 150 characters? 140. Um, I guess like in a really like simple perspective, like I love I love his cinematography and use of color in a lot of his films. Like I was thinking about it the other day and uh, that the scene and I think it's Casino where they and it's always whenever they're executing somebody and throwing them in a ditch. 
there's always like some just unrealistic giant colored light behind them, like blue or green or pink or something. And it's like the most unnatural light. But for some reason it makes the scene more intense because it adds this like surrealism to it. Um, he, I, I love like, you know, Joe Pesci is just such a, <laughs> such a national treasure. So I think seeing him in any of, you know, the mob movies that Scorsese has done is just so fantastic. Um, I like the I like how he uses he stylizes violence in his movies, kind of in a, in a similar way that that Tarantino does. Yeah, but uh, in a more like gruesome, real way. Yeah, I mean his is more grounded in reality, right, than the hyper realism. Yes. Of, of like the Tarantino stuff. Yeah. But I don't know. What about you, Daniel? What is uh? Were you were you thinking of your opinion as he as like, a little bit? And yeah. I'm gonna I'm always gonna have long winded ones because there's no easy hot. I don't have short takes. Yeah, my talk, life I mean, is I don't have short takes about anybody yeah but let's look at like the eras right between like taxi driver to like shutter island to wolf of wall street even if you look at at the latter part of his work Mm -hmm. you don't realize how many movies he's made that's the other thing is that guy has like 25 plus movies in the can over uh, like a 30 40 year career already um and that alone is like truly impressive is he has staying power he's managed to just stay in the industry um I think he is a technical, like, cinematic master. He kind of knows how to call his shots. I think he's an artist in that he makes one for them, one for me, kind of. Um, And even the ones he does for them, quote, unquote, is still really, really good. Like, Soderbergh's like that. But I think he's. I like to think of him now as the anti TikToker. He's like your <laughs> your your grumpy grandpa. Yeah. He and Nolan the grandpa Dua are all cinema. famously grumpy grandpas yeah. about movies and movie going. Um, and it's because they, they really hold the theater experience near and dear to their hearts. And the world is like, I don't know if we need things to be in theaters anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I mean, it's like such an existential question. These grandpas are like, no, we do. I spent 40 years showing you why you need to do it. Do I have to make another movie to show you why things yeah. have to be in theaters? Yeah. Fine. I'll do it myself. Yeah. Kind of energy. <laughs> and Nolan does it like so big. You're like, I mean, yeah, I want to watch this guy crash a World War, like a World War II plane on IMAX. But Scorsese does it in subtle ways. Right. And I think it's funny that so much of his cinema, of his uh, like some of his filmography, gets like caught up in bro culture. When like he is like his movies are all about like tearing apart some of these like masculine ideas, especially being Italian American and like right. yeah. his cultural identity is so prevalent in so many of his movies. Um, but like per- he well. has he has silence. No one no one watched that. Yeah, it, a meditative movie list, about like three man, priests who yeah. go to like I don't know proselytize in Japan. What was that that list that I I think I sent it to you? I can't remember if I sent it in our group text or a different. It was one. a twenty. It was it twenty five films? Twenty three. To, yeah, twenty five top Scorsese films, and they right. put Silence as number one. Uh, wow, and I was really? like, re- yeah, over, yeah, like Casino I mean, and Goodfellas. And- people like to talk about The Irishman like it's a mob drama. It's like a very like reminiscent and like slower paced like drama that's just like yeah. it's about old men just yeah. like reflecting on their lives. Yeah, it just being like it was, which is kind of what Goodfellas the is. The best too, of kinda. times, the worst of times. Yeah, kind yeah. Of yeah. think about it. But I, I think they also. I watched the trailer ironically for The Irishman the other day because you know we we're. I know I was going to be coming here and talking about Scorsese. Um, I watched the movie too, but I just wanted like a quick refresh. That's a full three hour long movie. That's what yeah, I was saying. I was trying to watch they're all, this. They're all so long. I think, you know, people know what you usually are getting into when you get into Scorsese. So yeah. I think when they were like making the trailer, they kind of highlighted the very few violent aspects that are actually in that movie. And everybody's like, oh my yeah, God. The Irishman. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I think I walked into the movie expecting it to be that. Luckily, I had the patience to stick around and watch the whole movie because right. I just love the character dynamics between all three of the men. Um, but. Yeah, it was not what they were marketing it as. And I remember they got yeah. a lot of flack for that when it came out because people were just like, this movie just is slow. And it's like, well, that's okay. They just 
kind of did a little bit of a, yeah. a pump fake on you. you a know? lot of his movies, the critic score is way higher than the audience re- score. You're like, oh, it'll yeah. be like 45 yeah. to 90 or something, and you're like, holy shit, yeah. this but, guy is like... But that tells you something always when you go yeah. when you're walking into a movie, if you know that going into it, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, that, like, obviously is faster-paced movies and more stylistic movies. Like, Shutter Island is like opera. Like, this guy, this is Scorsese doing, like... Grand Guignol level, like Madame yes. Butterfly style filmmaking, because yeah. he is not known for like heavy visual effects like that, or like, you know, he's going for like virtuosic performances rather than the minimalism, or yeah, like uh, I don't know. That I, was something watching this, at, especially sense? yeah, in a string of uh, Scorsese movies, like putting this in there in you know last week or it's so, so that we've been vivid. It's so vivid, and it is so much more like yeah, stylized than a lot of other things. Like the the dream sequences in this movie, when those come in, and I'm like. It, it it's that's the least Scorsese like thing that happens. It is, it's, yeah. It's such it, an interesting it way direction for him to Which go. Which is funny because I looked at a lot of the the critical reception, um, and I think that's the like the complaint some critics have is like this thing is so over the top. Mm-hmm. And obviously the ending, like when they spell it, they literally spell it out for you. You're like, all right, I can see now how that would be like a bit much. It's still mind blowing. It, it blew my mind when I first saw it. Yeah, yeah me too. Um, and I think that's why audiences loved it is because they just got so like a shock to their system. But it is funny because critics who follow his work will be like, "This is like the least Scorsese thing I've seen from him in a while." Yeah. But what's funny is the people's knee jerk reaction to that is to for that to be a bad thing, right? You know, it's like I think we forget that these directors are allowed to be humans that change. That yeah, they want to try they, different they, things. They, they want to, yeah. you know, switch things up to keep things interesting. You know, they're an artist. Their their job is to not satisfy you and give you, you know, your thank next, you, your I, next favorite. We're, we're best friends. Yeah, you know, it's it's their it's not their job to give you your your next favorite Scorsese movie. They're they're creators. Plus, you like know? you don't know them taking a risk might turn out to be something like extremely fascinating, right? And it's, often does. Yeah. And what's interesting about Scorsese too is I think that along with you know directors like Kubrick, that you have this idea of them being. Have, having a vision that they're executing from beginning to end that has been perfectly laid out in their brain since the, like, the idea what of its lie. first inception, right? But that's the thing is like when uh, you listen to interviews of DiCaprio or even like uh, in interviews for Wolf of Wall Street with like Jonah Hill and stuff talking about what it's like to work with Marty, right? Yeah. And how w- the reason he is called or, the, or identified as a, as a virtuoso director and filmmaker is not necessarily because he's bringing to fruition these uh, visions of a film that he has in the can that he's just trying to force the elements into, you know, manifesting. It's that like Jonah Hill talks about in an interview for Wolf of Wall Street how Martin Scorsese will show up to set and if something's going wrong like if there's you know the setup for a particular shot isn't working or they don't have something that was supposed to be on set at a certain time or you know other circumstances aren't working out Scorsese is the type of filmmaker who much like like a chef like in a kitchen right or like an artist who is working with limited resources will rearrange a scene on the fly direct his actors and his crew in a certain way um, at the spur of a moment or the drop of the hat and still put together a work of art like a scene that is that is amazing yeah. and I think it's that that sort of um, the the innate instinct that he's developed over the decades of his career um, to put together amazing films is kind of what makes him an, an expert filmmaker rather than, you know, striving to create the best films ever made or anything. Um, right. But I think that's 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 what interests me about watching these movies again and going and trying to watch this movie in the context of like a horror movie too and seeing what he's right. what he's succeeding at trying to do. I love that people when you talk about Scorsese, there's always like six films he's made that at any given moment, if if you know like if you know the name Martin Scorsese, someone will be like, Oh, you haven't seen 
and then like they bring up like a really fan like I haven't seen Raging Bull and everyone's like oh my god you haven't seen Raging Bull I'm like that guy made 25 <laughs> movies I haven't seen 20 of them I don't know what to tell you like yeah, right. it happens to everyone that's yeah. what I love about Scorsese is everybody will jump on you the moment they're like oh if you liked The Departed like you should check out Aviator and they're like I've never seen that and you're no, like why haven't you seen Aviator, fuck Aviator. Yeah, it's like, that, would, <laughs> yeah. that is not what my jump would be to from The Departed yeah. no but the, he has movies the, like that the like, king of comedy if you've or taxi British right taxi everyone who saw The Joker right? they were yeah. like oh this is just king of comedy and, and like, collectively a society went what's king of comedy <laughs> yeah literally <laughs> Um, I have trouble watching Taxi Driver because I don't like hearing my name over and over again. Right, right. Um, Yeah, so this is based on a book by Dennis Lehane uh, of the same name. Uh, Lehane is also the author who wrote uh, a couple of the books that have been turned into movies, Gone Baby Gone, Mystic River. Um, He was also a writer on The Wire. Ooh, I didn't Um, know that. I love both those movies. Yeah, Yeah. um, he's a a really good writer who worked very closely with the uh, screenwriter for this movie. Uh, You can kind of tell the movie is is very, very close in function and plot to the book, uh, almost like word for word in many, most of the scenes. Um, they they did a really good job of sort of just directly translating and adapting the book into the movie um, and then adding all of the benefits that come with not having the, the book, the movie come from the limited perspective of yeah. the unreliable narrator that is uh, Teddy, um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Teddy uh, Marshall. Yeah, Teddy. Teddy Marshall. Teddy. Teddy Daniels. Oh, yeah, Teddy Daniels. Yeah, Teddy, the, Teddy Daniels. Teddy the Marshall. is the Marshall. Yeah. There it is. Um, Chuck. Chuck, how you doing, Chuck? (laughs) So this is written uh, in 2002. Uh, Dennis Lehane talks about how he was really upset with the uh, political direction that the country was going uh, in that era. So in sort of a form of escapism, decided to write a period noir set in 1954 uh, during the height of McCarthyism in another era where political turmoil was arguably just as high, but in a different sort of history. That part of of history always amazes me that like we as a society were like there, are you communist? Like, yeah, you must be evil. I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) You're not like, I don't know, a spy or like some kind of actually antagonistic force. You're just, I think everyone should share government resources. And you're like, (laughs) Oh my God! We should How kill them. How dare you? Yeah, like just commun. I, but I get it. There was not that I get that we should prosecute them, but that they were feared because communists were invading America. Yeah, blah blah blah. Well, John like, McCarthy was a guy. That, yeah, I mean, you know, America has to have like that big bad wolf. Mm-hmm. You know, because they can't deal with time. their own shit. Yep, yeah, you know. Um, <laughs> right now it's China. Yeah, right. It was. Yeah. And is to and a certain degree. I actually don't think we can release this podcast in China anymore now. <laughs> Dang it. Oh, no. Sorry, China. Ah, we've Damn spoiled it, the market. I didn't say that I agree. I just said that it is China. At the what was the, the headline for Avatar 2 Gains coveted China release or something? And I was like, coveted? Like, uh, all right. No, I mean, that <laughs> movie is so expensive. Oh, my God. It has to, how much money does it have to make for it to actually it it has has to to make like $800 million? It has to make eighth highest grossing movie of all time yeah. in order to make back its money. Jesus Christ. It costs about $500 million. Uh, Jeez. But, uh, so Shutter Island was inspired by um, other uh, films and uh, stories uh, like The Manchurian Candidate uh, and Invasion oh. of the Body Snatchers, uh, which you can kind of see, I feel like, coming out in the plot oh, yeah. of this movie, right? Now no, that I know sure. it, I'm like, yeah. oh, it was always there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just watched the Mentoring Kid, actually. The one with Denzel Washington, to be specific. Nice. Gotcha. The one that, uh, what's his name? Who's the who's that director? Jonathan Demme. Okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Directed. It was, yeah. yeah. I liked it a lot. Honestly, I mean, obviously the original is a classic, but as far as the remake goes, like, I thought they, that was a great movie. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's nice. really good. I'll catch up. Yeah. yeah. Um, also kind of inspired by uh, the Titty Cut Follies. Uh, have you heard about this? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I saw that in your notes and I was like, um, don't be mean. Don't be a kid. Don't be a child. <laughs> titty Cut. 
The Follies. The Follies. Um, it's a 1967 uh, American uh, documentary film produced and written by Frederick Wiseman uh, and filmed by John Marshall, which deals with the uh, patient inmates of Bridgewater State Hospital uh, for the Criminally Insane, a Massachusetts correctional institution in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Um, the title was taken from a talent show put on by the t- hospital staff. Uh, Titty Cut is a Wampanoag name for a, a nearby river. Um, okay, that, now I feel dumb. Yeah, that film <laughs> deals with yeah that film de- deals with the treatment of uh, patients um, in a similar sort of situation as the one that's portrayed in the film, where uh, the abuse of of psychologically unstable inmates in a in a mental institution is kind of put on display. Um, and interestingly, that uh, so Dr. James Gilligan was a clinical psychiatrist or psychologist who was um, kind of hired as a consultant for the uh, production design and directing of this movie, um, who was actually a psychiatrist at the Bridgewater Hospital uh, during its um, existence. It's like they did their research. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That was one of the interesting things, like in the um, the sort of the featurettes and stuff that came from the, uh, the DVD that I was watching, um, where he talks about at sort of at length about the production design being fairly accurate about how uh, being put in these places and the, like the dark underground tunnels and stuff where you're, you're walking around with, you know, naked inmates being uh, chained to walls and everything. And uh, sort of the, the really gross yeah. inhumane treatment. Well, of, I, I uh, like that when a director has like, has, has a certain feeling of like, I owe it to be as real as possible with this, you know, to pay homage to it. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, the other day were telling me about how, uh, nope had like an actual like marine biologist brought in to kind of like yeah justify like give like the actual creature a name and like you know talk about the structure of it like how it would work and i like it when like i mean it's a totally absurd thing that you're talking about and putting up on screen but anchoring it in reality just makes it so much deeper resonating also could you imagine that having it. that job like you're the marine biologist they oh hired to when that yeah. pops up explain an alien and you're like oh my god are you paying me to do this the right coolest now fucking job they give it a latin name and everything i forget what the uh, <laughs> the, the latin name is like it's related to like jellyfish origins but then like it has a uh, the name was, means like horse eater yeah in it, latin was like, or yeah, it was like night cloud night cloud stallion de- devourer yeah. or something so like what that a and it was like fucking wow. cool name yeah so dope um so yeah, it's cool and it's fictional, but it's shitty. Like it sucks when you're like, "No, this is real. This was yeah. history. This is what it actually looks like." As yeah, when it's not world building, did. it's just uh, doing due yeah. diligence to try to you know capture something that really happened. Yikes! Because uh, that's one of the main topics of this film is it deals with the idea of like this war between uh, the humane treatment of of people that are criminally insane and uh, the sort of treating them as inhuman, sort of just monsters and just lobotomizing everybody. Yeah, um, which is sort of the theme. To live know. as a monster or die free. I yeah. think. Uh, you have to, is that the give quote? Me the, no, give me the quote at the end. But to live hard or is it die hard or live free? <laughs> like, Wait, what? What movie are we talking to about? Live, to live as a monster or die as a good man. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's what it is. It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for memorizing your lines. Which is yeah, right. <laughs> which is uh, which is not in the book actually. No, yeah. it's not. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear cut in the book from what I what I read that, you know, it's, he relapses and then he just goes to get, you know, yeah, but we're not even there yet. Well, I imagine I'm Blake, like just found the book and then just went straight to the last page. Like, <laughs> is, like it, wait, is it there? Is like, it there? It's like, that's, that's too much. I got to All right, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of a long book. It's not, it's definitely not short. Sunday scaries. Yeah, let's talk about the, the, some of the scenes in this movie real quick. Uh, so the movie opens with the Paramount logo, and they're sampling music from uh, The Shining. Uh, it's a, a, a 
little sample of the soundtrack from The Shining um, on those opening credits. And then we get the first shots of like the boat and the ferry. Uh, this whole opening sequence is, is Leo and his partner Chuck, played by Mark Ruffalo, are sort of arriving at the island and then meeting everybody. The whole I love the way Chuck he says characters. Chuck the whole time. Yeah, what do you think of uh, Leo's like Boston time. accent? I feel like it's, it's, it's different than the Departed accent, right? It's way, it's more inflected, and I guess it's supposed to be of the 1950s, right. it's like Boston, the transatlantic 19- kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? I don't yeah, know. You, I mean, you might know more than me as well, far as dialect goes. I thought it was way harsher in The Departed. I think it's a little bit more subdued here. Yeah. 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 I mean, in The Departed, he was like, you know, really hitting out all the ass. He was and, a Southie boy. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the difference, too, is maybe this character isn't Boston born and raised. Like, yeah, Shutter Island's character. That mm-hmm. or, I mean, maybe didn't come up in like the, you know, like Southie or. Or maybe know, he's like not even class Boston. That's just the. Well, all right. That's yeah, just the, I don't know. That's, that's something he added in the book. Yeah, to help he himself. grows up on the in the, like in the book. There's this whole introduction uh, about his backstory and like his his dad like raising him. His dad was a fisherman, um, oh, okay. and they were raised on the coast. And his dad would go out and fish every day. And his dad took him out like one time to go fishing, and he threw up the entire time. So he he was like knew he was never going to be a fisherman. Uh, and then his his dad goes off in the book uh, on a fishing for a, a, a gig, wants a job, and then disappears at sea, and his body like the boat washes up on shore like you're uh, uh, weeks later or something um but in this one yeah we just we, we start off with leonardo dicaprio just like barfing into a toilet uh to show that he gets seasick um, that he's seasick yes mm-hmm. and that's i think that's the brilliance of this movie is that once you you know like you know martin scorsese famously said you know you have to see this movie twice right yeah and i think i mean i've seen it a handful of times now but i think the second time and on after i watched it you know because i knew nothing going into it nobody spoiled it for me I think like once you have that knowledge, it just makes like you just find all the little moments where it's like, oh, he was giving it to you and but you just didn't really put it all together till the end. Or maybe you did. Maybe you're smarter than me. I don't know. I didn't put it together till the very end. Oh, I, I did not. Yeah, yeah, I'm not. always slow yeah. with these things. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys? So I guess we're probably all I was all uh, we we're all about the same age where this came out like right at the end of high school. Basically. Yeah. For yeah me. Pretty much. Uh, I don't remember if I saw this. I don't think I saw this in theaters uh, when it came out. I rented weirdly. it from Blockbuster. Oh, oh the good old days. R.I.P. Oh, that hit me right in my feels. Yeah. Um, I think I leveled the boys with a single sentence. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) I think I did that too. I either like rented it or it might've been like some years later where it came on, uh, like on TV or like was on a streaming thing and I, I caught it, but I I watched this, I think like way after it came out. It's a film school classic. A lot of kids in film school will write papers on it. Cause it's, cause it's dense. It's, it's like that. Yeah. It's dense and it's by a a renowned filmmaker. Right. Um, I'm sure professors are tired of reading Shutter Shutter Island Island essays. (laughs) God, you actually just a second ago, you just kind of like just made me not go crazy because at the very beginning of the, you said there's a part of the music at the beginning that's from the shining. Mm -hmm. I thought I recognized it and it was driving me crazy. I was like, (laughs) I was like, what is this from? I've heard this before. How crazy would you say it's been driving you? Very crazy. Crazy enough enough to to get lobotomized. All work and no play. Yeah. (laughs) Send them to the lighthouse. Um, yeah, this whole so like you're talking about, they they lay the groundwork for the reveal later um, of everybody sort of playing off of Leonardo DiCaprio and framing it. I mean, Scorsese talks about directing this in a certain way too, and uh, how when you watch it again, you realize that the the clues are all there, right? Like as soon as uh, DiCaprio steps off that boat and gets into the car, everybody around him is is being super duper vigilant and cautious. Yeah, so all the guards are like super on edge. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Which is funny because they, they explain they're all on edge because of the disturbing, disturbing, mis- wow, disturbing disappearance there you go. There you of go. somebody on the island. Ten twister. 
but in reality, they're all on edge because they have this incredibly dangerous inmate who has just kind of been set loose on the island um, to just run about in his imaginary investigation. Um, and it's interesting, yeah, like, like you said, on a second watch, you see all these performances sort of like getting fleshed out. The other big one in this like opening sequence is the idea of like Mark Ruffalo fumbling with his gun uh when uh the uh, was it mcpherson uh, asks yeah. them all to hand over their, hand their over firearms and stuff yeah and oh, yeah. leo whips it out super fast but mark ruffalo has to like finagle with it where it's like somebody a u.s marshal would be it would be second nature for them to pull a gun out of their holster yeah um didn't super notice easily. that one there there's a mm. lot of them too this is gonna yeah. be fun because i i bet you maybe you saw some i saw some that i texted travis about but it's this is a movie that like everybody people love this movie because they all like I found out when right. and then they'll show you the clue and you're like oh, I didn't think about that. It's a little treasure hunt throughout it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I think like to the I don't know. I, I don't I guess it's not done in in an egregious way or like uh, do you think you should be able to watch a movie the first time and be happy with it the way you saw it or do you think like what it, is there a gimmicky nature to, to like forcing this to be like a rewatch kind of thing? Nah, I don't think so. At least in this case, maybe maybe in other films' cases, but like I don't I don't think so with this one. I yeah. don't think it diminished it in any way. I think it was a great like ride in mystery the first time, and then it's it's an equally as fun ride the second time because you you're in on the game. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think it diminished it in any way. Mm-hmm. For me personally. Was something that was interesting about uh, we were talking about Leo's accent, but like his performance throughout too is almost like. I remember there, there was something about the comping of the uh, the sets behind them too when they're first on that boat in the opening sequence where it it seemed kind of dreamlike because like the 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 water behind them is like sort of saturated at a different level than like their clothing and the boat and everything um, and it's just a visual effects thing that kind of didn't ring through but there there's something about the way that Leo's character comes off where it, it almost seems like he's posturing and doing a performance as well um, throughout the movie. Like the, the way like their banter and their dialogue is so sort of like comically hor- like crime noir. Right. Yes. And it's like, it's almost out of like a, uh... well, I think that's what rubs people um, when it comes to this movie is mm-hmm. it feels over the top and they're like, this is like, Oh my God. Do like I, this cartoonish. Is re- yeah. Almost, yeah. Right? They have to like my, my wife is like, it's fine. She's like, it's a fine movie. Mm-hmm. She's like, I actually kind of forgot what happened. I sort of remembered, but then I'm like, oh, my God, we get it. Like her second rewatch, she was like, we know, move on. <laughs> and But she has no patience for that, especially because uh, like none of the female characters in the movie are like have any agency. Anything whatsoever at or, all. They're yeah. all victims. They're all they all die yeah. or like are committed. Yeah, she's just like, I don't have tolerance for this. Like, why are you watching men chase their own tails? I do this for a living kind of stuff. And yeah, I'm like, right. You know, that's actually a really good argument. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I think the aspect of Leo's performance where it's like, it feels almost like it's a rehearsed scene that he's done a million times and everybody else is just kind of playing along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you get different levels from different people about like their willingness to go along with it. Like you have the doctors obviously that are really invested in his health that are really trying to like play the game with him. But then you have other people kind of like Max von Sydow that kind of almost in a way feels like he's poking fun at him mm-hmm. yeah. while he's, while he's interacting with him. Yeah. Cause um, he, and there's that scene in the study where they're sort of, he sort of directly antagonizes him in a yes. way. Right. And then yes. uh, we get the, so one of the other things that I think is 
I don't know how relevant it, it is to the plot, like, in the movie form, um, but the idea of his, like, wartime experience and, like, him as an unreliable narrator, like, whether or not, like, that actually took place, um, and then, like, how it relates to, like, it, it relates to what's going on in the movie as far as, you know, maybe he's traumatized from that experience as well as the, the death of his wife and children, but... Um, yeah, the liberation of Dachau and him bringing back up his sort of like anti-German uh, stuff with Max, on, Max von Sydow whenever they're in the study. Yeah. Um, but in that scene, you're right, we get the Ben Kingsley and Max von Sydow sort of directly sort of positioning these two uh, characters that are battling against each other or they're, they're serving as stand-ins for the two schools of psychi- like psychiatry at the time. The idea of like treatment versus just sort of annihilation uh, yeah through. <laughs> yeah you make both of the you make one of those sound really fun yeah right <laughs> gosh it's so hard to choose uh, <laughs> yeah he, he goes off on max von Sydow being german and then starts i don't know leonardo DiCaprio speaking german was uh also maybe one of the weaker moments of the movie for me but but i think that's the point too is he's yeah. not like a i don't okay i'm not gonna nitpick those german speaking right. in this movie <laughs> yeah. the point is his character didn't like learn germany just like in found it while he was touring germany fighting nazis basically so whatever germany has is limited yeah but that's not important to this um in a way though it is the point is shutter islands is that kind of a movie where every little detail is important and mm -hmm. so it rewards repeated viewings because you find you can like you already know details and you start looking at new ones and you're like, oh my god, it was there all along. It's like, and then you know. I think by the fourth rewatch, I'm like, it's super <laughs> obvious. Yeah, it is. It's like so obvious what's it, happening. It couldn't here. be anything but like everybody putting on a performance, right? I, right. Essentially, I wanted to add to your like talking about like the twist. I read a great thing that said like um, movie twists only work when they actually change how we perceived all the information preceding it. Like, right. A good twist, you, it makes you rethink what you saw. But a bad twist, you kind of either it doesn't it like a bad twist can happen. And it doesn't change how you see the previous movie, which a great example. And I'm going to harp on this forever is a villain bait and switch at the end when you're watching a movie and the whole movie, you're like, this is the bad guy. And then at the end, you're like, surprise, this is the bad guy. Yeah. And like nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, you're like, OK, yeah, because cool. I, because it's like yeah. that doesn't because if they're giving you all this evidence throughout the movie that it's this person that feels earned, right? And then like when it ends up being somebody else, you're like, wait, what? Yeah, you know, a lot nothing of times, they've done up to this point would lead me to believe, right? That or they're they like, were, I've uh, secretly yeah. been arch- like making all this happen yeah. while you weren't paying attention. But it's an example of a bad twist, which is why I have a theory that villain bait and switches like never work. I'm yeah, like, that's, that's a bad idea. That's a really good way to put that. Like as a, as a writer, as a writing rule, just don't do villain bait and switches. Yeah. Don't do it until you're really good at writing that you start to be like, I think I can do this. Boom. There you go. Future but writers. Of a lot of people are going to hate me for that. I'm is, sorry. Nah. Is this a villain bait and switch kind of? Is it? A, no, because, because the, who is the villain of this movie? Well, that's, is it Max that's what I'm saying. Yeah. To the point of the twist in this movie mm-hmm. does. We go back and we're like, oh, shit. This is everything about this movie. is It's a completely mm-hmm. different movie now that I've seen it. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, the villains in the movie stay the same just for different reasons. Because Max von Sydow kind of consistently True. stays a villain, but not right. for the reasons that, that Leo thinks he is. Yeah. You know? He's almost like like the villain is just is is leo not being able to overcome his a second watch you yes. actually have a lot more sympathy for like everybody else that you didn't mm-hmm. you're like oh you i do i care more about the guards because like they're scared for their lives and yeah. nurses and, like, and yeah. everybody ben kingsley's really freaking trying out yes here. and I'm, at the end of the movie all that you feel at the end of the day is like a profound sadness mm-hmm. in my personal opinion and right because it's, it's like 
it's almost like the overall theme of the of it is is like in mental health and treatment like there are no winners it's just like a slow loss yeah so i say i think know? the villain of the story is is the dissociative identity disorder that yeah that teddy is is suffering from yeah uh, and his inability to overcome that is what is the is the tragedy yeah. of it. or i mean end. even even more dark it's like you can't you can be traumatized enough in life that there is no going back. This right. was smile. Let's smile all over again. Yeah. 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 yeah kind of. Same yeah. thing. In a way, just a different uh, encounter with it and a much more sort of friendly it's and facilitating. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the next couple of scenes too, the one, the other one that uh, I think sticks out really well when you're on a rewatch is uh, sort of when he gets to the interrogation scenes. Right. So there's, there's a scene too, where he like talks to, the room full of nurses, right? And uh, Scorsese talks about how about directing that scene, about how they had done dozens and dozens of takes by that point uh, over several, several hours. And so everybody was already kind of out of it and worn out. And so he talks to the, the crowd of nurses and actors who were playing the extras in the background. He says, you know, act in this scene exactly the way you feel right now. Act bored and act like you've been sitting here for hours and hours and hours and you're tired of like going through this stupid spiel. Because yeah. it's like in that scene, Teddy is, you know, he's not lost any of his credibility in theory yet and he's talking to this uh, room of nurses and they're all kind of giving him they're giving him lip like he's talking to a couple people and he's like anything out of the ordinary happen and the nurse says like, I work in a mental <laughs> hospital <laughs> nothing here is ordinary yeah um and on a first watch you're like everybody here is an asshole but then on on the rewatches, you know, you understand that they're all this, those poor people just having to sit there and watch. They're this, being taken this... time out of their actual work to like humor this guy. Yeah, and, and watch they've been him. given scripts to read, and they're all like, uh, "Blah blah blah." Those are the words I was supposed to say. Next, yeah. please. Yeah, they're all like, "Can we just lobotomize this guy already?" <laughs> but this is it, ridiculous. Here's a fun, interesting thing too: is uh, it, uh, there's a mixed variety of people who work at this place. But uh, you notice when they shoot some of the scenes where he's addressing the workers, uh, all of the African American workers are in one section, and all the white workers are in another. Um, so there's even like some historical similarities in that, like the people who worked there would have also uh, like would have been. Yeah, it would have been separated. Yeah, because it's oh, the 1950s, yeah. and so there is going to be like probably a racial element to it. Uh, in the in the book, there actually is one specific character in the first um, in, like interview that he does with uh, the two doctors, um, but the Ben Kingsley and Max von Sydow character. Uh, before Doctor Nering, the character played by Max von Sydow is introduced in the book. There's actually one of the orderlies is uh, he's a black orderly who is in charge of guarding the cell where Rachel was supposed to be uh, right. so supposed to, supposed to have been kept. And in the book, Teddy interrogates him first and sort of through his interrogation implies that he isn't doing his job the right way or that he was lazy or inattentive and there's a whole interplay there in the book between uh the ben kingsley and dr collie and and that orderly of of him acknowledging wow. being like calm it's i know but just let him do his yeah. inter- in- interrogation kind of thing right, and it's, right. uh, it's maybe fleshed out a little don't bit take more. it personally yeah. yeah um to be clear for anyone who's listening um Leonardo DiCaprio's Ed Marshall Teddy has gone to this island because a, an orderly has gone missing. A and no one inmate, knows. Or Rachel, inmate, yeah. Uh, inmate. A uh, committed person, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was trying to be polite. Um, has gone missing. MIA. And, yeah, and it's a. their job to, his job to find them. And yes. his partner, who's brand new, is also trying to help him. As Ben Kingsley says in the movie, it's as if she vanished mm-hmm. through thin air. Yeah. Like, you know, she walked through the walls. But we do find out the longer this goes on that um, Marshall. Teddy has has more reasons to be on this island than he let on, mm-hmm. and it all has to do with his personal history. Yeah, that's th- like the plot of Leonardo DiCaprio's. I don't. 
of this like person, this alternative self. He's like created the the narrative he's created is exactly what I just laid out. So he's going through these like he has to interrogate the staff. They go visit the room, like all these like classic detective moves. Yeah. Um. And so it's like really really elaborate cosplay or like uh, puzzle rooms if you like really think about it. Yeah, it's just the the biggest escape room. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, it's the biggest. <laughs> escape. I'm so sorry to diminish this movie to that, but like it is a very very elaborate escape room. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, through the process of investigating Rachel's cell, they find that clue, the little piece of paper that says who is number 67, which will come right, into like, play later. Why, why make this more elaborate than it needs to be? Yeah. Like, uh, here's a clue. Yeah. He's going to spend a lot of time thinking about this one. There is something funny about the way that he is kind of led through the investigation, also by Chuck, too, right? Because they go off. So, like, as the the weather sort of becomes, like, an issue, right? Right. Then they um, get stuck on the island because a tropical freaking storm blows through. Right. Uh, Yeah, I've always been curious about, especially this time, like how much of that derailed their plan. Yeah, that's my wife's question. She was the same thing. They obviously couldn't fake that or know that that or maybe they did know that. She was was like, did they fake a storm? No. Yeah. (laughs) How much work did they do? I remember when I when I watched it the second time, I kept trying to find moments where it's like maybe they're faking the storm. But now, I mean, there's no way they could do that. But yeah. But well, Ben Kingsley brings up later when they're actually when they have the ultimate reveal up in the lighthouse. He says we've been through this over and over again. You know the search, yeah. the storm, and like yeah. everything. So there, I don't know. There is an element of it, like of of it playing into it beforehand, because um, it also does serve to like keep him like in the institution and on the right. island and stuff. Yeah. Once you know, yeah. Um, once you know, it's really you do kind of like okay what is manufactured right like yes. what does the what does the institution manufacture to help this narrative kind of push along and what is just coincidence is like they mm-hmm. just uh, they just got a rainstorm that night they got super lucky and they were like great yeah. we did it <laughs> or maybe it is something that happened seasonal so they can plan on it you know what i mean, I mean oh it is, god it, that's so cynical I mean, that's, that's so <laughs> i love they're like every nine months like well it's fall that's we better do this one season. Yeah, i know that's terrible but <laughs> I don't know. I know, but that's accurate. They do say, I mean, like, this, yeah. ha- this is not the first time we've done this. Because the reason I say that is because the isolation that's caused by the storm is an element that they that they, right. that they play into and say needed to happen for to set the scene for what's happening. Right. So it's like, okay, so do they do they do this when it's, you know, monsoon season? Like, what's, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, you know. Or do they, know. like, see a window? They're like, oh, a storm's coming in a week. You're like, oh, all right, all right. Flip yeah. the schedule. We're gonna we're gonna do the the Teddy Daniels thing for like a week, just a week. Humor us, guys. Um, what I like though is that uh, so when they, when they do get caught in the storm, right, they get stuck in that sepulcher, like the the thing when they're going through the graveyard, right. right? That's where he confesses um, why he's really on the island. Yeah, he introduces the idea that he the the a patient named Andrew Latus uh, is also supposed to be kept on the island and Andrew Latus is responsible for the death of his wife. He, uh, apparently he was a fire bug who, uh, lit a fire at his apartment that consumed uh, his wife. And now he's on the hunt to try to find him as well. Uh, and as if that wasn't enough while he's looking for this latest character, he meets another committed person who says they're doing stuff to us here. Mm hmm. And he wants to know what the hell's going on on this island. He's like, I'm not here for the missing patient. I'm here for the, the whole the whole damn place. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. The the way that Mark Ruffalo sort of like fills in his conspiracy gaps though is the yeah. scene that kind of like had me go like especially on a rewatch you you watch Mark Ruffalo who is revealed <sighs> later to be Dr. Shaheen, right? Who, you know, 
Dr. Teddy, Sheehan. 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 Sheehan, right? Yeah. Because uh, Teddy is going around and he's asking for the doctor who's directly in charge of the missing patient, Rachel, right? And they say, well, he's on vacation, uh, which I love. Like, you, you log your PTO days or you request that time off way in advance and you're going to take that time off regardless yeah, right. of the Like 1950s would have honored him being like, well, <laughs> yeah. going on vacation. Um, I think Leo actually even mocks that at one point. He's like, he's like, y'all let him leave yeah he's like he's like he's like what this is an active investigation yeah Um, exactly and they're like yeah that's that's uh that's the best we got it's the best lie we got set in stone man i wish companies had like vacation policies like that seriously the company's burning down but you're on vacation so when you're back we'll deal with it we'll talk about it when you get back yeah i have quit jobs over less like (laughs) i swear i was like i requested time off it's like oh we're not gonna give it to me okay i guess i'm not gonna be here then i quit (laughs) i quit um but yeah, the idea of uh, Mark Ruffalo, like they're in that tomb and as T- Teddy is kind of like spinning this yarn about, he's like, well, they must be treating patient. Think about it. Think about it, Chuck. Experimentation. They're going to they're using drugs to train, you know, to, to hypnotize these people. And then Mark Ruffalo's character is like, yeah, if they're doing it here, they must be doing it, you know, everywhere else, too. And he's just kind of leading him down the rabbit hole, I guess, to try to get him to. You, actually, it's super interesting um, as a general theme. Mark Ruffalo's character's job is to sort of get him to rabbit hole. There's times when you like you when you know it, you're like, oh, he's actually really close to the truth, and mm-hmm. all he has to do is kind of like not get dragged down the rabbit hole, and he might figure it out. But he sent him, and then Mark Ruffalo will kind of yeah. see it. Yeah, and Mark Ruffalo's like, you should do this, and then immediately yeah. is like back to the like Andrew latest. Where's latest? Gotta mm-hmm. find latest. Yeah, yeah. What is what's that line that he has where he's like, what? He's like, what if the whole time they were looking, you were looking into them, they, they were, were looking, looking into, into you. you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Great line. Um, that happens in the in the sepulcher in the tomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It does so they regroup uh, like on the cliffs. They climb up uh, next to the lighthouse, but they become separated, right? Uh, and then Teddy walks down to the lighthouse to try to like jump basically from the shoreline to the lighthouse, but realizes it's impossible because of the tide. And he comes back up, and Chuck appears to have plummeted to his death. <laughs> yep. Uh, Casual. Yeah. There's because there is a body down there, at least from his perspective. And so he ends up like climbing down the cliff uh, to try to recover him. Uh, and then he discovers that cave where the the other fake Rachel uh, is supposedly hiding um, or the real Rachel, the real fake, real. <laughs> yes. Rachel. The, the in his mind, real Rachel. Yeah. Rachel, too. Yeah. Rachel, too. <laughs> As she's credited. Um, oh, that's what I was going to say. The actor, Who's the actress that plays uh, Rachel the first time? The Emily or, the, Mortimer. Emily Mortimer, right? Mm-hmm. Well, she's always great. Um, but I was like, man, when you when you, when you you now know at the end that like everybody that, that's playing those roles is kind of in on the gig, um, like talk about like a like an Oscar-worthy actress in an orderly's body. You know what I mean? Like right. she sold that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like she like, you know what I mean? Like she really made him believe it. I mean, she, I, she made me believe it too. It was crazy. I was like, wow, okay, cool. Also maybe, like what a bummer. Maybe like, she does theater when she goes back to the, right. to the mainland. You know, yeah. I don't know. But she was she was great. Did she volunteer for that role or was it a signer? Like did she draw the shortest straw? <laughs> oh yeah, and that's a good question too. Is like did they actually hire they're all orderlies. Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's even uh, when, when they interview her and what Scorsese talks about, too, is like, you know, you have all these characters who are playing. Char- you have these actors playing characters who are playing a role as yeah. well. So it's like layer. You're, you're like directing like three different movies at the same time, essentially right. three different performances. Uh, and with her, too, like in her interviews, she says, you know, it's very it's a very complicated position to be in because you're you're playing a character who is performing to try to fulfill a role for the purposes of this grand illusion that they're creating. Yeah. And her whole thing was like, well. 
if it comes out bad, at least I can say I can fall back on the idea that it's like I'm playing somebody who is playing at Blake, acting, right? Would that be if you had to play a character who was lying, who was like, oh, I'm pretending to be an actor. You had to play a person pretending to be on TV or something like those that many layers of artifice. Like, would that break your brain? No, I don't think so, because I think it's all about, I mean, acting, at least like really good acting, in my opinion, is all about, you know, tricking yourself into making it real for yourself. Yeah. So all you'd have to all you'd have to tell yourself is like, OK, this person is just doing their best to, you know, make believe that this is real. And, you know, there's all kinds of little tricks. You like can... when you do it, do you do you kind of skip a layer where you're like, I'm this char- I'm this person pretending to be this character. Do you just go straight to, oh, I'm just this character? Yeah, I think honestly, it, I I mean, I think if if you ask like if you're asking that character like if that character was a real person, they'd probably give you a different story. But like, yeah, me as the actor has to probably skip a layer because right. you have to play like you have to you have to play the scene, you have to play what it is that you're playing. Right. So you so can't, like you don't do the mindset of. But I mean, I it but it it's it's complicated because if there because I can't remember if there's a moment in that scene where she looks uncomfortable like she looks uncomfortable as the actual person playing the person i don't know she like commits he, to it if, pretty fully like she's yeah. like screaming at him and so then like because she commits to it so fully you can just play the character that she's playing but mm-hmm. i think if there's moments where he like if something goes out of whack like out if of you're mark and, ruffalo's character yeah and she and she makes him or he makes her feel uncomfortable and she's like asking for help then it's it's a little bit more layered than that you have to yeah. layer you have to just layer in the moments where it's like her her cover is blown yeah, and she's now the person that just feels really uncomfortable. It reminds me of like like the Truman Show situation, right? Yeah, where it's like yeah. his wife like starts to freak out and ask for help whenever he like pulls a knife on her. Yes, her that's a, that's a great that's a great example uh, that, where you yeah. you have to break character within character right. kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, that's. I think after that we get some of these uh, some of these dream sequences I want to talk about too because like I think this is what sort of like pulls it into the horror genre as well because that one of those first dream sequences so we get the first one that I think is the most stylized right with um, Michelle Williams playing Dolores where they're in some kind of version of, of the apartment room uh, where he still has the illusion like the idea or the manifestation of they lived in an apartment that burned down and she like turns to ash within his arms like she's yeah. all she's all wet she's like one of the most water. famous shots from the movie yeah it only happens for like like 30 seconds though but yeah they yeah. which like pre-hugo I, I think is like the most CGI that yeah, that, that he's he ever Scorsese probably had ever used yeah. yeah you know what I mean yeah yeah so it's an effective scene though it's very I mean, it's a very romantic dream sequence uh, with her like bursting into flames, like in his arms, and then she just like crumbles into ash. The she gets, apartment like burning, be- slowly burning, bigger, yeah. brighter and brighter behind him. Yeah, yeah. she gets Thanos snapped away. Um, she does. That's actually it, I hate to be that guy. That is a very accurate portrayal of it. <laughs> if no one's ever seen this, it visually looks the exact same. Uh, but the next dream sequence, couple of dream sequences, are the ones that I think uh, sort of pull this into the horror genre enough. Especially the one where um, the Emily Moore. Mortimer, Emily Mortimer version of Rachel is uh, standing over the murdered bodies of all their of all the children, uh, all of her children or his children. Uh, the story is also Rachel Solando killed her kids, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, this, I, I, I'm just getting really confusing in my brain, guys. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, that's the the idea is that the the imaginary Rachel that he's chasing around, this patient is also responsible for having murdered her children, uh, kind of in in a in similar family annihilator way as like his actual real life wife. Right. Did too, and that's right? why she's there. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because the image of her, Emily Mortimer, covered in like blood from like the neck down, right, standing over the bodies and asking, "Could you give me a hand with this?" Uh, that one, I mean, it's a it's a genuinely creepy scene, right? Yeah. And in his like dreamlike state, he isn't reacting the way that you would if you witness that kind of thing. He says, "You know, I could get in a lot of trouble," uh, kind of thing. And it's I don't know. There's something really interesting about about his his uh, relationship with reality i guess like in that in that dream sequence and how he how he reacts to seeing like the murdered bodies of a bunch of children you know below well, him one of the aspects of the film that i think i picked up on this time is that he replaced his trauma with what happened with his wife and the kids with uh, the holocaust hmm. so he essentially kind of and you know in like the everyday person's mind found like the most horrible thing that anybody can go through an experience which is you know walking into a concentration camp Mm -hmm. and seeing all that death and and terribleness um he replaced that with what happened in real life to him with his wife and his kids and throughout the movie the veil of that is lifting slowly Mm -hmm. we get more elements of realism kind of being inserted into those um dream sequences so i like the 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 degradation of like how it just kind of they kind of come together happens throughout the movie and i thought that was really cool i didn't notice that till this time yeah it's interesting like the liberation of dachau was like a real life thing that happened too right where uh allied soldiers came and and uh liberated a concentration camp in dachau in germany and uh in the course of that liberation there was fighting that broke out uh, after they had taken prisoner all of the uh concentration camp uh soldiers and they basically just executed them all uh, on the spot yeah i mean um, that's i think that's like the in the timeline of this character's lifespan i think that's the inciting incident of like his alcoholism that he mm-hmm. mentions and yeah. kind of what like breaks his kind of like it's a traumatic the trauma that kind of splits his mind to begin with mm-hmm. and makes him like s- like susceptible to these sorts of things and it's like the first event but not the worst like most personally worst thing he's ever experienced like mm-hmm. had yeah. to experience but I do, yeah, it's like, and it's so profound. It goes back to that question, too, um, that he kind of poses. Because, like, he, he they they round up all the Nazi, sci- like, do- like guards and scientists. Yeah. And they're like, you can just tell, like, and there's, like, flashes of bodies. It, it is brutal. Yeah. And you kind of, like, in a, it, the movie makes takes a lot of effort to kind of, like, make you not feel bad for the, like, Nazi guards. You're like, fucking they're monsters like mm-hmm. shoot them i don't seeing know seeing the frozen bodies of like all yeah of the trying to justify and, yeah. um you know teddy's actions in world war ii mm-hmm. as like well of course he did that he was shocked and mm-hmm. like so appalled that like the moment things like kind of sparked up the moment a person just kind of like started running someone took like fire killed that guy and then the, the gi's just line we're just like all right fuck it we're all gonna, we're gonna kill them all and that of course is like it, it's like he, they were all monsters, but they all the GIs they still took human lives, mm-hmm. and so it's like, was it a monstrous act? That's the interesting thing that I think that that's introduced by the Max von Sydow character at the beginning, right? Is the idea is I do I'm very familiar with men men of your kind, men of violence, right? And it's like not necessarily men who commit acts of violence, but men who are surrounded by violence and who are you know they they can't escape it essentially, right? Um, and then he has that great conversation with uh, uh, Ted Levine in the car, which mm-hmm. is about the nature of violence. Yeah. Sunday scaries. Yeah, you know? man. Surprise, Ted Levine. I really yeah. wish he was utilized more. It's my, in this, honestly, the it's warden. My, yeah, it's my favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah, Their it's great because it's was... fucking Ted Levine. It's like, oh, I know you. Yeah, I've, I, I've, it, I've known you for. It's kind of yeah. got a Cain and Abel feel. Yeah. It's, yeah, it does. It's sort of a like the 
the inevitability of like of Teddy's existence, sort of right, and that's kind of what that's going to get confusing saying Teddy and then Ted Levine too, right? But right. Uh, but yeah, of of his existence and his his presence in the in the asylum, and Ted Levine just sort of like almost fourth wall breaking, just kind of sort of pulling back the curtain because it's kind of clear. It seems like he has less care for maintaining the the charade or whatever, and so he's just sort of like trying like willy-nilly breaking his brain being yeah. like oh yeah we've done this all before well yeah i think his... i think his whole thing is you know he's worked on that island i think long enough and seen so many different patients right. that he's like this is your nature this is who you are like yeah. there's no curing you of your nature mm-hmm. you know because so that, that is the essential argument from the people that are on that side of the the, the war and the in psychology right in in this time period is the idea that these people aren't to be cured they can't be cured they're not they're not curable they're they're broken human beings who are are essentially violent and essentially you know insane yeah uh, in a way that's that's irrevocable um yeah whenever they they come back and like he realizes that uh they get back to the offices right and he tries to talk to dr crawley about asking where chuck is and have you taken the lighthouse he's convinced that he's been abducted or something and then getting it. gaslighted he's like that, there is no part you have no partner you didn't come with a partner it's the what? whole thing with like in the mouth of madness again where it's like they sent him off and uh they're like oh you went alone you weren't you know there was nobody with you that entire time um and so he becomes convinced that chuck is is being holed away in the lighthouse uh, well, he's warned. The other thing too is, for narrative purposes, he meets. He's like goes back down to the caves and meets a real Rachel, who tells him, "I'm actually a very sane human. This hospital just invented a an idea to get me committed so they could keep experimenting." Mm-hmm. And she tells him, "They're gonna do the exact same thing to do you to you. Have you left this island yet? No. The, he's wearing clothes for that they give um the patients because his clothes got wet or whatever mm-hmm. yeah and he like at this point he's dressed like a patient yeah and she tells him they're gonna use your world war ii trauma and say that you lost your mind looking for me this fake rachel they've invented and they're gonna commit you because they want to like crack open your skull and do all this stuff so she's kind of speaking to the fact that like they at that time people got committed for like seemingly nothing and could never leave it's the catch twenty two of like, how do you prove you're not crazy? Yeah. Well, what would an insane person say? Oh, I'm not crazy. Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so he, at this moment, is talking to the doctor, and he's like, "You're just making all this shit up so you can keep me here and look into my brain." Like he's fully convinced that Chuck's around. They're just they're hiding him, or like they've got him strapped down to a gurney, and they're gonna use Chuck against him so that he's he has to be committed to the hospital. Right. And you and I mean you really start to believe it if you're when you're yeah. going through the film the first time because you're like oh yeah they gave him the clothes they gave him new cigarettes like he took aspirin so and so for mm-hmm. his uh, yeah she asked him have you taken any pills eaten their food yeah like, she's like you, she was like T- tell me right now that you have you've been smoking your own cigarettes and, <laughs> and he's like uh, no I haven't actually yeah and it's notable like I mean those little seeds are planted too at the beginning of the movie and on a rewatch you get those where he's constantly like I mean in the book too he's constantly patting his jacket like looking for his cigarettes right yeah and uh, so there's and Chuck is always there to offer him one and it's uh it's interesting but the idea also that rachel too the one that he finds in the cave too is uh, is completely a manifestation of his imagination yeah uh, because in yeah she doesn't exist in reality like yeah. in the actual reality um, yeah and she's it, not I mean, literally makes, there well it makes total sense too because i mean like how how long has she been he doesn't even ask her how long she's been in that cave yeah. she also says she goes cave to cave on a daily basis Phys- like literally speaking she's like oh i'm a migrant i go from one side of a cave to another so they'll never catch me I'm like what yeah it's like what this is a small island 
Is it like, possible? She's yeah, just yeah, living yeah. in there like Gollum with her fucking... Her yeah, she, she goes full Gollum. It's like probably eating fox pelts or something. Yeah, or those rats that were outside. Yeah. Why, you know, there's a bunch of them. So she's just like, all right, new rat. Rats. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um... Yeah, let's talk about this this lighthouse scene though. Like, so when he actually finally uh, decides to go and try to rescue Chuck from the lighthouse, right? Uh, he he wanders over there and steals a firearm from a poor guard. Beats the guard. <laughs> I love I love too when they go to Big Kingsley and he's like, "Did you beat the guard?" And he's like, "I took care of he's him." Like, Did he, you hurt him? Did you yeah. kill him? Or <laughs> and he's like, he just brings him up. Like, all right, when you come over here, make sure you check on that guy. He's probably not okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's probably yeah. got a concussion. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's getting extra pay. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. You get a bonus for getting your head smashed in by Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. I mean, because they know he's going to do it, yeah. too. That's like the worst part. The guard was just set up. They're like, you're going to get hit. Please just fall and they, don't don't get up. Think about the yeah. story told from his perspective where he's like, they're putting on this like fucking crazy performance for this one very violent pr- inmate that we have here. Right. And I'm just standing out here. He could be out there anywhere. And suddenly right. out of nowhere, he pops up and just conks him in the head. Bonks him. Uh, he bonks yep. him. Uh, and takes his ammo-less rifle. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like barely even a prop. No, it's yeah. like a bunch of wood. But it's, yeah, for the purposes of their thing, it's like he, he makes it real in his mind, I yeah. guess. And so that's the that's the whole the whole it's point. Like they could never legally give him that guy a gun. Yeah. No. <laughs> but he, he wanders up the spiral staircase of that uh, of the lighthouse, and he, he passes Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe on the way, and then he gets up to the, the top floor. That's not literal. They, I, that doesn't happen in the movie. It's a joke. <laughs> for <laughs> for anyone who like, doesn't what? know the lighthouse. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so this conversation with Ben Kingsley where everything sort of like comes unraveled, right? And uh, it's revealed that... They uh, lay it all out. Yeah, that his... his out there. I, one of my, I don't know, it's kind of a pet peeve for me now because I feel like it's been beaten to death, but anagrams in movies are, I know. Uh, they spell it out and you're like... Oh man, I feel this is dumb. <laughs> this is kind of dumb. But it's just some, subtext. Just leave yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but who, who's actually going to be sitting there in the theater, like writing out the names and like trying to rearrange the letters <laughs> to see if like that sounds I mean, like I'm, a, I'm going to now a really like, fun every, person to go see have, movies with. Do you ever watch Rick and Morty? Uh, sometimes it yeah. sounds like a Jerry Smith thing where they like would write a scene like that because everyone else is like, "We get it, it's actually him," and Jerry would be like, <laughs> "Whoa, guys, they changed the letters around." <laughs> That Teddy, that uh, Andrew Teddy Daniels is an anagram for Andrew, Andrew Latis, Latis, and then Rachel Solando is an anagram for Dolores uh, Daniels. Yeah, right. And so he's he's created this uh, this Teddy imaginary Daniels persona. Daniels is Andrew Latis. Mm-hmm. There you have it. Andrew, Latis. which we said very early in the episode. Oh yeah, but no. I'm being clear about this. The movie came out 12 years ago. If you haven't seen it, you should. You yeah, should dummy. It. Yeah, yeah, dummy. Um, Get on it. Yeah, the reveal that he is actually Andrew Latis and that he created this imaginary other version of himself who is briefly played by uh, Elias Codius um, in, a, in a dream sequence flashback. Who is um, always fantastic. Mm-hmm. He's like, I love his work. He's always like this guy that like he's, he's always like a, s- a supporting character actor. But he always comes in like a ninja and just kills what he does. He's a good background character to have. Yeah. Like a good extra. Like in The Haunting in Connecticut when he plays Reverend Popescu. Popescu? We never did. I ever figure out how to pronounce that? No, <laughs> we're bad at name Pop pronunciations on this podcast. Uh, yeah, he plays the the cancer ridden reverend in Haunting in Connecticut, and uh, he's he's awesome in that too. Yeah, like, very endearing, but also just like I don't know. But yeah, in this one, he's he's sinister and yeah, and very much very so. like unsettling in a way Oof. with that giant scar across his face. Um, and then who is the actor that plays? Uh, 
the other character in the cell. What's the other character? Bill Noyce. Oh, George Noyce. George Noyce. George Noyce. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who's oh, that? Who's Jackie that Earl Haley. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love all, Jackie. Always Haley. fantastic. What, from what else? Uh, uh, he was Rorschach. Rorschach. In Watchmen. Oh, Watchmen. Oh, yeah. That's what we know. But he's also uh, he's Freddy Krueger in the new the remade Freddy uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Oh, in the newest one. Similar yeah, famous one. character actor. Like he's actually in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's in a lot. But of he's things. often like dressed in weird ways like you wouldn't he's not like a face that's easy to mm-hmm. recognize yeah because his mean, roles I, don't often use his face no yeah. yeah i think my first introduction to him was watchmen and i was like this guy's fantastic it's the first time i was that's like the best part of that movie jackie sure. earl yeah. haley yeah. yeah and then you go and watch other things and you're like wait a minute i think that's jackie earl haley <laughs> and he's you know in, in the scene of the Look, movie he's got three first names <laughs> yeah i love it <laughs> He's uh he's kind of laying it out there for him, but like not so much like really telling him. But he's you know he's saying he's like you've been alone since you've been here. You know he's like you're in a trap, you're a rat trapped in a fucking maze. You know he's basically kind of telling. I him do like, love another it. performance says, that completely changes meaning once you understand yes, like what's he's, happening. He's like you did this to me, mm-hmm. and he's like and he's trying to justify. It. He's like no no no. He means like because of this this happened to him. He's like no like you are literally the person that beat the shit out of him. Yeah. You know, yeah. DiCaprio thinks like, oh, because I started investigating, I'm responsible for yes. you being they here. They beat you up, yeah. and yeah. you're, yeah. But, but not, really, DiCaprio beat the shit out of him. You literally beat me. Yeah. yeah. But that was like, I think that was the biggest because they don't want to give it to you before the reveal. But that was the biggest, I think, like gamble scene where it's like, okay, we got to make sure that we work this the right way to where like there's doubt, but he's also still giving it to him. All you right. know what I mean? So that way, when you go back, you're like. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. You can know? I can I tell you my like massive aha moment that I sent to Travis? Yes, this is that the only, I'm officially like I have nothing left to give after this. Um, so that scene, the one you just described, they go uh-huh. to the the third ward that no one's allowed access to, um, and they sneak in, and it's this whole bit where he fights a random um patient and they like he wounds him. So Mark Ruffalo and another doctor are gone. They like go take care of this patient. And um, Teddy Daniels has to like he crosses over from one side of a catwalk to another. And then that's the next scene is he meets George Noyce. <coughs> what happens visually? And this is like evidence that I'm like Martin Scorsese is a goddamn genius. We're all idiots. Um, is as he crosses over this X shaped catwalk. Right. It's like in a cross shape, maybe uh-huh. um, as he walks, the camera does a 45 degree turn just straight like no pan or anything. It just tilts. And the whole like sidewalk and him like crossing does another like turns into a different X as I'm making like gestures on a Daniel is podcast. A, Daniel is a, I have is, arms. This is important. <laughs> Travis, you better put the video on this. Forearms. You yeah. better put the video on this. All right, it's a video podcast now. I wish y'all could see this. It's beautiful. Um, <laughs> but literally, it is at the exact that moment that shot happens is almost at the exact center of the movie by the second, and that is the moment that. Uh, he has this scene with George Noyce and the whole story is revealed. So it's literally like the movie changes. The whole world shifts and now he is like on a different plane. Like he doesn't trust his partner after that scene. He starts to like suspect things more deeply after that scene. And so it's literally like he crosses into a new world or the world literally flips on him. Oh, wow. I was so proud of that. I texted yeah, it to right. Travis. Yeah, and yeah. You, should, I, man, you should be proud of that. I was That's... like fast forwarding, rewinding, trying to be like, where exactly is the second that this is like because it is it's actually time stamped like at this center of the movie maybe off by like a second or two though i was like i mean anyone can do the math and find and yeah the, the, it's like perfectly in the right. center you know what's beautiful about that is that if we had martin scorsese here he'd probably he could, he could be very well listening to him going 
I didn't do that on purpose. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know what I mean? And then, and then he's like, he's like, Hey man, but that's movies, baby. Like you're, that's your life right. to have that be your interpretation. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So it could be that he's just like, I don't know. It's felt right. And we are like, Oh yeah. my God, your subconscious is incredible. But it is an, an, an empower, a very powerful moment we kind of like skip because we're just like, yeah. la-di-da, he's walking across a like a little crosswalk or whatever. And you're like, no, it's the fucking crosswalk of the entire movie and like everything changes afterwards. <laughs> it's the intersection of the movie. I love that. Yeah, exactly. The crossroads of the movie. That was my one insight. And I was like, I'm done. Brain is over. <laughs> That's a good uh, one. That is a great, yeah. That's great. It is a great turning point in the movie. And uh, the whole interaction with noise, too, is, is I think, like you said, is, is a point where we see that character sort of like crossing a threshold. And, and then, we as the audience start to be like, oh, wait a minute. We probably shouldn't trust our protagonist anymore. Yeah, Things are not up. what they seem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with the ultimate reveal, too, in this, the, the final sort of like flashback dream sequence, right, where we get to sort of see visually what actually happened to Dolores and uh, the children. Uh, DiCaprio that talks was about how That yeah, fucked me up. DiCaprio talks about how this is the scene that he was the most proud of and the most interested in and performing and how it kind of, it really defines the character um, because you don't really understand, like through the through the flashbacks to Dachau, right? And you, you, you kind of try to understand the trauma that could like possibly push this character to the edge and down this road. But then you actually get the scene of him coming home and realizing that uh, seeing his wife all wet in the backyard uh, and then realizing that she's drowned his three kids. And it's it's a drawn-out sequence. And laid them out. Or, no, it, it's They're not, in the water when yeah. he gets there, right? Um, and this is what Scorsese and DiCaprio were talking about, about, like, the like you have it on paper and in the script, right? But the logistics of filming this and, and, and performing it and, like, going out into the water and, like, what do you do? Do you grab the kids first or do you try to revive one first or do you, like, you know, try to bring them back? Um, and then seeing him go through, like, the the very literal sort of encounter with that is uh it's pretty powerful uh yeah it's a it's a it's a rough scene uh to get through but yeah it i think that's the horror too like it I, at least i think it pushes it down that genre and especially in the context of him his entire reality unraveling in right. that moment and then like coming to terms with it once again uh and sort of like just facing the that visual moment. horror of like he's like carrying three drowned children mm-hmm. off of off of a lake shore i mean the horror of it works on so many levels because it's it's obviously like you know the immediate impact of like okay well kids were drowned mm-hmm. you know like that's just a horrible thing but it's also it's the person that you're in love with mm-hmm. and then it's also the fact that there were so many moments where you probably could have gotten her help but mm-hmm. you just didn't because right. back then you know mental health is so stigmatized you're mm-hmm. just like oh, we're going to move away to the woods by the lake and you're just going to get fresh air and it's all going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Right. They like you say know? that she had moments. Yes. Uh, and that she right. burned down their apartment, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, there were so many things back then that, you know, just p- people just ignored when it comes to that kind of thing. Until it was too late. Until it was too late. And, and it's also and- Michelle Williams' performance in this moment too. Like whenever she, so like he's going and like cradling the kids in God. his arms and stuff. Uh. And she like comes and like leans, like gets up in his arms and it says, you know, let's, let's put them at the dinner table. Let's try them off. <sighs> and change their clothes oh, that was the part that where i'm like made my fucking skin crawl. yeah yeah it's it's audience I, I already texted y'all but do you want to hear an addition to this exact <laughs> moment that will make God your skin it. crawl yes yeah. <laughs> should i say it go for it yeah. okay i here's how i'll say this as i was watching this scene dicaprio rescues his drowned beloved daughter uh-huh. um, of only like nine or ten years and yeah. tries to perform cpr it's too late she's dead my wife looks at me and says, "Oh no! I bet you that girl <laughs> is old enough now to date Leonardo DiCaprio." Oh god! And I was like, <laughs> "No, what? What? Like deepest possible silence." My brain cracked in half, and I was like, 
wait, what? And sure enough, because my wife loves doing this to me, she found her Instagram. <laughs> oh, no. Found, like, it, of course she's, like, a model. She's 24. She's, like, fun and thriving on Instagram. Yeah. Sends so, it to me so and the, says, Leo yeah. DiCaprio, she's one year away from losing her chance at Leo. And I was like, fuck. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's freaking awesome. Yeah, because not only is she old enough, but she's his type. Right. Yeah, and then yeah. we had a long conversation about, uh, do you think Leo's PR team like has, a, has like a policy about who he can and cannot date? Like, There's a rules, like no young co-stars. Like, you can't date your young co-stars. You can date other young people. I would imagine so. <laughs> or but like... the fact that they have to think of that and tell it to <sighs> him, maybe. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just a dark, dark... That was like the another real-life horror moment. I was like, God, God, God fuck. I'm glad God. we got there together. God forbid I ever work with Leonardo DiCaprio and I tell him to listen to this <laughs> podcast. I'm going to have to tell him to skip over you this episode. You know what? I listened to him. This is actually kind of crazy. I listened to him and Brad Pitt talk to um, Mark Marin. Yeah. And he was joking about how like the like uh, the paparazzi are horrible around him and his personal life. Um, oh yeah, and even he, and Brad Pitt was like, "Dude, I'm the same way. This sucks." And they were both laughing. He's like, "I guess it's because Brad Pitt's like, I guess it must be something in my personal life that's really special to everyone, like his divorce." Oh yeah. right. And he's kind of, like they know, they yeah. know, yeah, they know, and they're st- and he's still just like, oh, gosh. Like, uh, I mean, I think when you're at their level, you just kind of realize like this is part of the animal of who I am. You yeah, know, right. Being a well, mega, a mega star. So. I think we talked before too about like stars, especially that started acting so young. Like when you grow up in that industry, and it's like the only reality that you ever known. Like yeah. they don't, they don't have a relationship with like the real world. Like it's. Oh yeah. I mean, he just has so much more money than God that like your bubble is just different. Yeah. I'll say this though. I think, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I think reality TV kind of exploding the way that it has is kind of taken, uh, the flack off of like celebrities and things like that because we have like reality TV stars, like real trashy people, people. real trashy people that we obsess about what's going on in their personal lives. And they put it out there for us to watch. I think also, I mean, just like, like, social media and the idea that like anybody can be like a you know a, a star now because right. and everybody has like various you know the 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 parasocial relationship thing has been franchised out a lot more oh, yeah where it's you know like tiktok like the idea of like tiktok and instagram stars where it's like oh you don't right. you're not really famous for like anything like any you're famous for being famous but in the most like yeah know, like superficial way oh we're um, so in the weeds right now but so i had Dr. to put it on the podcast I, I know, my yeah. wife said those things I leo know, I, I know. Yeah. um but so like i mentioned uh the dr gilligan uh, dr gilligan earlier who was the uh cons- like sort of the, the consulted psychologist uh on set for this movie or in the cast for this movie or crew for this movie um discussed with Michelle Williams a lot about like the nature of this character and about like real life examples of, um, of women and other people who've, who've committed, you know, homicide in this way with some others, family annihilation and stuff. Um, and this really, he, he brings up this really interesting idea of, of these types of murders, uh, falling paradoxically into this category called, um, like altruistic homicide where the, the, the people committing the murder see it as the only avenue for like escape, the only way that they can get out of, you know, what other, whatever turmoil or situation that's driving them to, to have like the feelings of murder or to feel like that, you know, this is the only, the only escape. Right. Um, I think that's, that is what is conveyed and like what comes through in this performance of Michelle Williams too, where she says, you know, set me free kind of like before 
uh, Teddy shoots her. And uh, yeah, that's true. And yeah. a lot of them, and I mean, a lot of like serial killers, for example, use that as justification for why they continued. Mm-hmm. They like, right. you know, they say, "Why'd you keep doing this?" And it's like, "You never caught me." Mm-hmm. Like I was wait, I was waiting. <laughs> you, that, that some yeah. of them that legitimately say that. It's like I was, you know, waiting for you know for you. So some that's some Ed Kemper stuff, right? right. There. Like, yeah, uh, they know exactly. they're fucked up, and they're like, "Somebody, I can't stop me, so somebody yeah. else should." Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. As as the coming to terms with his reality uh, kind of breaks Teddy's brain, right? And so the, the the remainder of this movie is we get this sort of the reveal that uh, Doctor Sheehan is is actually Chuck, right? He comes in and and I think Ruffalo is, is sort of the unsung like I mean he's in there for most of the scenes, but like I think his performance really adds to this movie and so much more than we really kind of give it credit for um, as being you mentioned it earlier as him sort of like being the guiding light for. Teddy as he's like going through he's the, the investigation. person I watch the most on the rewatches because mm-hmm. you're you're actually watching him kind mm-hmm. of like direct. He's directing a lot of this on the fly. Mm-hmm. Like all the interviews, if you watch Mark Ruffalo's character, there's bits where he's like making eye contact with them. Like, okay, that's enough. Like tone it down mm-hmm. or like move on or something. Yeah, so many like, yeah, just little moments that, I mean, he's just, a, he's such a great actor. He's obviously going to pepper it with all kinds of little moments like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I always found myself watching Ben Kingsley more, but that's probably just because I think Ben Kingsley's just like absolute <laughs> master. Oh yeah. Everything. I mean, he's, he's entrancing whenever you yes. watch him like yeah. anything. Um, yeah, I think like Mark Ruffalo, it's interesting Mark Ruffalo in this, like that, you see that little tidbit of him really getting cast in this because he wrote like a fan letter to Scorsese asking to work with him. Like he wasn't necessarily even like a first choice or anything. He just gets, uh, he gets pulled up from the bench. To, hey man, you, you want to roll and I guess you're famous, sl- slightly famous enough and campaign hard enough. You might be able to score it. I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Man, that's kind of how that works. Yeah. Uh, this is an interesting time in his career too, like coming off of. I mean, Internal Sunshine's in two thousand four, six years before this. Oh and my then god! Zodiac in two thousand seven. Oh a few yeah. Years before, so like probably a couple years before I they think started. Eternal Sunshine. On I just think of Mark Ruffalo like bouncing around in his whitey tights. Yeah, I know that's Kirsten, the first Kirsten Dunst. Well, they're dancing I on think. the bed from out that one shot from outside yeah. the window. That's what I always think about too. So goofy. It's so cute though. I love that. I don't know. I love him in that movie. Um, but yeah, the ending of this movie, though, right, is is the most like like we're talking about the people that you watch on our rewatch too. Um, so everything's been revealed, and uh, you're sitting there with Mark Ruffalo and Leonardo DiCaprio on the stoop in front of the. They uh, tell him they're like, "We've actually done this a couple times, yeah, and you regress, yeah. If you regress, the board wants you lobotomized, yep. And if we find out that you've regressed, I have no choice. Ben King's like, I've been fighting and fighting for years and years, two years." To, to prevent this and if you regress i this is uh this decision is out of my hands you will be lobotomized and yeah. that's it they're like okay promise us you're not gonna do we're not gonna do this who again. are you i'm andrew latis right so he walks us through he's like i am andrew latis i committed these crimes i did all he like kind of says like I've, I've got it my brain is here i'm mm-hmm, not yeah. gonna regress and then we're on the steps and then there we go and you see a mark ruffalo looking at him and then that that he delivers those lines where he says you know, first you get the couple of like you know glances the eye contact between ben kingsley who is far off standing next to the max von Sydow, and mark ruffalo is sitting there on the steps and you can tell that they're waiting for his like signal or not of whether or not he's he's there and uh he's talking to leonardo dicaprio he says we just got to get off this island man like yeah it's, uh, says, it's, we got to get off this island chuck yeah yeah he calls him Chuck. That's another like a indicator. A indicator. Yeah. They think he's he's lost it. And um, you know, there's uh, Leo and Martin Scorsese to this day will not tell you whether or not he actually is aggressed or not in their mind, at least. Right. Right. Um, but I mean, I think to me personally, and I, and I read an article about this, and it was like this psychologist that wrote this article about what he thought about the ending of the movie. 
And it's not so much the line that he says or even the look that he gives Mark Ruffalo, which for me was always the biggest tell-all because just the way that he looks at him. In that moment for me, I think he says, like, like it's okay. Like, I'm choosing this. You're not, yeah. a, fa- you're not a failure. It's a very brief look. That's how I interpreted that's what, it. But that's what he's saying is, like, I'm choosing this. So, so, with, so with don't that, feel bad. With that final, with the famous line that we kind of put up top, right? It's like, you either die a good man or, or you know. Or live a monster or die a good man. Would yeah. you rather live as a monster or die as a good, a good man? man? Right. And so the reading of this ending, right, is that he's essentially, like, committing suicide by by willfully so, walking wait, into. Wait, let me add this. I, I feel like we're, like, I got to say this. I'm sorry, guys. Yeah, go but, for like, it. he does that. And then the the Mark Ruffalo looks at Ben Kingsley and he kind of shakes his head. He's like, I don't know. It didn't work, man. Like, yeah. we got to do it. Mm-hmm. So Ben Kingsley's like, all right, send the orderlies. And um, I forget exactly how it works, but he like Leo gets up and he doesn't acknowledge Mark Ruffalo, but Mark says something, he, like calls him Teddy or something, and he doesn't answer it. He like just, uh, I forget exactly what the line was at the very end, but he's like, Someone says something to him, calls him Teddy, and he doesn't answer. Like, in a way that he should have turned around and, like, said something. And then he just walks up to the guards and just starts walking away with them. Well, and mm-hmm. that was the that was the uh, the guy in the article that I read's point was that he thinks that he's willfully committing suicide is because the whole movie, he's been extremely paranoid of all these people. You know, um, the German doctor, the orderlies, he's actually been acting very violent and resistant towards them. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the movie, he's walking in full submission to like, let's go. So yeah. that that's actually out of character with his pretend character. So exactly. that's why that's why he, th- he thinks that he's actually, you know. Yeah, it's super poignant, man. It's yeah. So the the shot of like the like the the pick the needle being brought like in in a little God, cloth it's so yeah, weird yeah, yeah, yeah. why would they have that on standby like oh you just hold them down in the grass we'll knock yeah, this out real fast right zero um, faith yeah very very dark and poignant ending uh i think it, i don't know, i think it belongs in horror a little bit that's why I'd... i definitely in psychological yeah. i see it it's psychological thriller psychological noir thriller um yeah, so like the the reception of this movie, right? It's I think it's it's been pretty well lauded since it came out. Uh, I mean, it's a yeah Scorsese DiCaprio movie, like in a, in a run of movies that are that are pretty fire, uh, leading up to like Wolf of Wall Street and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to this day, I think if you if you are just gonna start listing out, you know, Martin Scorsese movies, it's for some reason one that just doesn't immediately pop to mind, even though yeah. it's so great. people forget he directed it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you know. Okay. I also thought that was why it was okay to like pull this one into the horror. You have like, to think thing. too, like it's sandwiched between things like The Departed and Wolf of Wall Street. You're like, oh, the two, like two of the most modern, notorious modern movies that he's made. Right. Mm-hmm. He's got like Wolf of Wall Street, and fucking everybody knows that movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, for better or worse. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I mean, this was his most uh, commercially successful movie though to date when it came out. Which, yeah. Which so- I find crazy over like Gangs of New York and The Departed, and I mean Goodfellas. It's like really. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. So uh, at the time, so the opening weekend, uh, it opened to forty point two million dollars. Uh, so it was the highest. Uh, cre- it was a career best for his for Martin Scorsese up until Wolf of Wall Street came out. Yeah. Um, so it grossed over two hundred ninety three million dollars over its career, just just about three hundred million dollars essentially. Um, and it was the highest bo- grossing movie of his career until Wolf of Wall Street came out. Yeah. Uh, it opens so like it gets pushed back right from October of 2009 to February of 2010. Interestingly, um, we've talked before about like as far as the seasons of releases go during the year, February is an interesting place for a movie like this, a Scorsese picture to like to get dropped. Um, 
I wonder if there's something they didn't want to compete with because I feel like that's what that usually what usually impacts that. Well, interestingly, so the weekend that this comes out, right? Uh, so it opens to first in the box office, uh, first place in the box office. It's opening weekend. It yeah. is um, 14 million domestically. It's opening weekend. Uh, number two is uh, Valentine's Day. Um, which is up, it's in its second week and is uh, grossed up to $76 million. That was like that moment when they were trying to make like ro- uh, romantic movies centered around holidays. Yeah. So it was like, like New Year's Eve work. was a one yeah, movie yeah. and then Valentine's Day. Yeah. And they would have done like, you know, and it's St. Like Patrick's ma- Day if they could have. Yeah, so, and it's like a massive cast of like everybody who's like yeah, it's hot like, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, number three is Percy Jackson and the Olympians, the lightning thief. <laughs> oh, my in God. In its second week, uh, they had grossed $47 million by that point. Number four in its uh, ninth week is Avatar, uh, which had, oh. <laughs> was up to $676 million at that point, but still right. made almost $4 million that weekend. Right, because um, people just can't get enough of the blue people. Yeah. Nope. Uh, and then number five was the uh, the Wolfman with uh, man. I like that movie. That was a good lot. one with the, the Medicio del Toro Wolfman. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. It, I think it got kind of swept under the rug. Like it's a weirdly like forgotten uh, monster movie. I remember movie. liking that movie a lot. Was that part of that was part of the idea to like bring back all the Universal monsters? It was not right? actually. Was that it? was pre that idea. That was before they because like what else was involved in that? Right, the like the mummy or. Sunday scaries. Well, yeah. So Universal's stable of monsters. That this was because this was 2010, right? Yeah. So they were barely two years in. This is I had to be this guy. This was barely two years into the MCU, so they didn't know if a cinematic universe could work. But when around, I think after like 2012, after Avengers came out, they were like, "Oh no!" Or yeah, 2012. They were like, "Wait, no, this works. We should do this." Yeah. And so Universal kicked off like they were trying to get pitches for all of our universal monsters, the mummy, the creature from the black lagoon, the invisible man, um, Jacqueline Hyde. Yeah. Frankenstein. Um, we will have separate movies, but then they'll all like join each other in, in a universe. Yeah. Um, which they even cast all those roles. I think they had, um, Johnny Depp was going to be the, with the invisible man. They actually had Russell Crowe as Jacqueline Hyde in Tom Cruise as the mummy which was the only movie that we actually got to see. Tom Cruise's yeah. The Mummy was supposed to kick off this cinematic universe, and it flopped, and they were like, scratch everything. Fuck it. Scratch everything. Um, Do you yeah. remember the uh, the transformation? No, Javier Bardem was going to play a Wolfman, I think. Really? Uh, that's interesting. Dude, look at the cast list. It's wild. Because, dude, there's something about having like a Latin American Wolfman. Like the Benicio Del Toro transformation scene, whenever he's uh, in this 2010 Wolfman, when yeah. he's like in the... like. It's like a like a viewing room and the then like sanitarium. A, yeah, the the moon comes through that like skylight and yeah. shit. It's that's yeah. cool, man. I like I like Benicio del Toro as well. Yeah, oh, I so um, you know that and Shutter Island. Yeah, Shutter um, Island, good movie. I was gonna say the the box office. They actually pushed the release date from October to February. Um, and it's earlier in the show notes, Travis. Um, <laughs> oh, the Paramount thing. <laughs> well, part of it. Um, yeah. so first is they pushed it because. Uh, rumor has it they didn't have enough financing yet to market the movie. Once they'd had it, they realized they wanted to do like an awards push, and mm. so they were they needed more time to secure financing for marketing. But the other thing was that um, DiCaprio's schedule just he wasn't available to do press. So it was like, well, you can't have a movie and then not have him go around and talk about it. He's yep. too busy filming something else. 
Um, and then interestingly, I thought, um, was that another idea was that it got pushed to February because they had hopes the economy would get better circa that time yeah, and that there would be like there. more money for adults to go see these kinds of movies. Oh yeah. Cause it's, yeah, yeah. Right. Following so you're about two years into the, the yeah, global the recession. recession mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Can you imagine making that movie and you're like, can't wait for my friends and family to see it. It's, guys get ready October. And then the studio's yeah. like, we're doing it in February. And you're like, God. fuck okay. <laughs> but my mom you know like I don't my know. mom is dying yeah oh god <laughs> but like oh no yeah it's just funny um yeah i enjoyed watching this movie again i watched it like three times i guess for getting ready for this and it was a uh, that third time it's that that thing of going through and like just picking out all the little easter eggs of uh i remember this is a d- dumb story but when i was a freshman in college because this is a great this movie tends to get analyzed a lot right mm-hmm. but i was in an english class and we were reading freud at the time and because freud talks a lot about dreams um which the hu- human scientists scientists can't really study dreams it's just really really hard to, to apply the scientific theory to or the method to right um and so that like a lot of stuff you hear about dreams is not perfectly scientifically proven and so freud's ideas about dreams are just as real or not as anybody else's but you know you're in freshman in college you got to read freud learn about the oedipus complex you're cool you're smart but we're reading about dreams and someone this was 2011 so someone was like oh you know it's a great movie about dreams inception and i was like (laughs) do not watch inception that has nothing to do with freud it doesn't belong in the same conversation. I was like such a snotty 18-year-old. And I was like, <laughs> actually, a better movie to watch about Freudian uh, themes and like the subconscious desires would probably be Shutter Island. And everyone's just like, eh, but Inception's cooler. Like, oh, man. <laughs> Ironically, both Leo movies and movies about him dealing with a dead wife. In roughly a four-month period. So this came out February. And then Inception would come out, or five-month, I think, in July. Summer 2010. What a oh, fucking yeah. year! Because Nolan man. movies come out almost every even year, except once COVID happened. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, tr- from 2006, start. probably 2004, up until 2020, we got a Nolan movie almost every even year. Wow. Or every four years. Man was working. And is that scene that funny thing about Inception and the like final shots of it, right? That backyard of his at his little his lake house or whatever looks suspiciously like the set. Like a lake of, house on Shutter Island. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. It's it like does. it's almost like exactly the same. I'm like, they might as well just like knock out those two sequences in the same filming day, right? And just have him uh Right. It's even like the same kids. And then <laughs> David Fincher's like, This is actually how my character from Fight Club was who's reading the novel <laughs> and watching the movie at the same time that he was railing against consumerism it's not like secret identity self thing that's like fight club that's another man personality movie oh yeah when a guy's like fight club was right we should reject consumerism and become like primitive apes who beat each other senselessly god i love it i'm just like man what what is going on is everyone okay there is something about are the people okay you were uh Blake was on for the episode we did on American Psycho too and like another <laughs> Oh, I listened to that. That was yeah, a great episode. Yeah, yeah another was. another uh I think we all we all walked into that episode like like what are we going to talk about? And then the and then like just sprawling stuff happened for two and a half hours. That's this like, podcast, baby. Man, I know, yeah, man. That's why we're all here. I know. Um that's Shutter Island. Have you guys watched anything else recently that you loved or hated? Blake um yes i mean we've kind of talked about it extensively i think you're probably still going through it but um you know 
Andor was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just like, it was such a, I mean, I think I knew going into it, like just from the trailers, like it looked like they had a good beat on at least what Rogue One was and what made right. Rogue One. Special. I watched that last, watched Rogue One last night because I'm halfway through Andor. Yeah. And it still is to this day, in my opinion, the best that Disney has done yeah, Star Wars up. wise, film wise, at least. Um, and yeah, I think they just, they took what was great about Rogue One and they ran with it and they just deepened it. And it's, you know, who knew that what we needed for Star Wars was not a single lightsaber and just spy warfare and gritty realism. And it just like, you know, it was Star Wars for adults and it, every character was dealing with a lot of, like a lot of really heavy things. It was just very flushed out, really good writing. Um, yeah, it was, I don't know, man, it was just a ride and I loved it. And I know that they're not going to beat it over the head either. They only want to do two seasons. Mm. So they're just going to, you know, they have a story they want to tell. They're going to get in, get out. And I really admire Which that. Like, I, I appreciate that, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's let's just have stories that begin and end. I yeah. feel like the case has been made now because I'm with you. I actually am exact same. I'm like, I could actually do with less lightsabers. But like yeah. the case is kind of made that like some of the best stuff, quote unquote, Star Wars stuff has just nothing to do with Star Wars. It's just like the background for like the Mandalorian's a space western and you're like, yeah, and sure it's like quote unquote like Star Wars, but like no one would know. If they didn't know what Star Wars was in a vacuum and they watched yeah. those shows, they'd be like, they're not related at all. They're the super Star Wars elements right. are almost just like obligatory in it, right? You just throw that stuff right. in and you really like I, I like I was one of those people that like I really I liked season one of The Mandalorian better and everybody was like, what? Like season two is so much better. It had like Ahsoka and Boba Fett and I was like, yeah, but here's the thing. Like, that felt like a heavy-handed serve of, like... It's so forced. It, it's plugging their future TV shows. Right. So it's like, okay, I, I don't... It felt very with forced you. and heavy-handed. It, I it, actually am, like, way more interested in, like, other... I would... I'm, like, such a shill for anything that's just, like, good and interesting, but that happens in the same universe as all these other things and is, like, a different conception of the same universe. I mean, you right. know, and what it is, too, is, like, it when you're splitting off from the main like grand epic right of right. what is the main storyline of star Which wars is like what you're hokey when you really think about it well it's it. because it is such a it, it's such a like a mythological like a, like the it, yeah. on scale right of these these characters like so you split off from that and what you end up doing is like oh you're telling like real stories basically about like people where you, you, this story could essentially be told based right. in our reality but if you just add you know sci-fi to it like you're really just dressing up a very grounded and like you know it, it's a crime thriller like yeah. it's, a, it's yeah. a true crime thriller yes or a, like it's a like a crime noir thriller is what andor andor is basically but it's it, just but put like in such the star wars universe great um beginning middle end of like how does an average citizen become a rebel right and yes. like what does it really mean to be a rebel you're not or just like, like right. fighting even, evil space cops and like what like, are the other like social consequences of like interacting with this thing that is only tangentially affecting your life and people are just trying to get along and be right. regular people yeah um, yeah and like and what happens to i mean the on the flip side of that like the inner workings of the empire. I think very that is level. so yes. interesting. Yeah. My favorite part of the show was um, when the guy, I can't, I can't remember his name, which sucks. Like but the, the white guy at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. The guy who's obsessed with casting Endor. Like he his fails story is my favorite. and then he goes, yes, I love his story too. Um, just goes home and it shows him going below the lower levels of Coruscant back to his like shitty apartment with his It's almost mom. like a parasite level kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, he's like yeah. browbeaten by his mother. By his mother. His, and it's like his it, mom it, is it, like it, space Jewish. Like she's like one of yes, those like yeah, Brooklyn space, moms. Like yes, <laughs> Space Jewish mom. She, But it's like it just humanizes this thing that we all have just come to look at as this grand space opera and it just makes it so much more real. Yeah. And, and then like I, I don't know how far you are into it so I don't want to ruin anything. I've got like two episodes left. Okay. I have so like have you have six. you have you did you watch episode ten? 
No, no, I haven't watched it yet. You haven't seen ten yet? No, because there's eleven total. Okay. Right? I finished well, at seven. Stellan Skarsgård has this great monologue, same spot and you. it's not ruining anything. Yeah, but, like he just he says at one point where he says like I burned my decency for somebody else's for a sunset for a sunrise that I'll never see. Mm. Yeah, and it's like and it's it's his character is so interesting to me because it's just like it's essentially what Cassian becomes before he becomes you know the a great yeah. hero of the rebellion. But it's like what about the people that like we know this about warfare is that it's dirty. You know, he's like, I'm, he said, he says, I'm doomed to use the tools of my enemy against them. Yeah. Cause it's his, and inter- it's like, it's just ugh. his interactions with that politician lady and stuff too. Like where she like, like even her, her whole thing is like a house of cards kind of thing where like, she's yeah. yes. a Senator in like the Imperial, Very house of yeah. Cards. Yeah. which yeah. I do so, love as like just a, like a practical note is that they're an empire, but they still have a Congress. It's it was a, like at any given moment, they could pass a monarchy at any given moment. The, the emperor could just be like, yeah, we're not doing that, but I appreciate you guys yeah. trying. And he does. I mean, in literally a new hope, he walks, you know, what's his name? Uh, Grandma of Targon walks into the room and he says like, that's no longer a problem. The emperor did away with the Senate. So it's like, so now we're going through all this. I'm just like, why are we even going through all right. this? You but, know what I mean? But it's a democracy dies in darkness kind of thing. Yeah, you know, like, exactly. That's And the cool thing about Andor is it's like, oh, it's death by a thousand cuts. Like an yes. empire doesn't just happen overnight. And like all of a sudden there's cops like trolling your neighborhood. Like you do what we say or we kill you. Yes. It's like they slowly squeeze and squeeze. And that's like the re- the rebellion's point is like, People haven't f- realized they're being squeezed until it's too late. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's uh, like, and part of the, I've finished the heist, so it's like part of the job is they knew that there's like this big overreaction, and the empire is like, we're gonna seize all territories. We officially just like we're gonna we kill whoever we want. And they're like, the people need to see them squeeze really hard to understand they're being oppressed. It's like yes. oppression happens like inch by inch in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's the banality of evil. It's yeah, the, it's the whole yeah, just like the rise of the. It was the first. I, I agree. I'm with you. I'm like so geeked yeah. on this show because it's the first Star Wars show I ever watched. I was like, I'm not gonna watch this until I see like consensus among critics that this thing is worth my time. Yeah. Yeah, we've talked about Andor almost as much as we've talked about Atlanta on the show. Now. <laughs> I love Atlanta. I Atlanta. There's is, a couple of shows and movies that we like always shout out. Yeah. I haven't shouted out Atlanta because it's over. Yeah. Don't remind me because <laughs> I heard. I just recently watched the episode in Atlanta from the the newest season where he, they talk about um, uh, YWAs. Yes, young white avatars. Yes, and it was like, man, I was like, I was like, I wonder if Jack Harlow is watching this and is just like, fuck, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it was just a fucking hilarious. I love they do the presentation and they're like Eminem and then like Fifty Cent or like, uh, oh, this subreddit was blowing up with examples. Yeah, like Ludacris and Justin Bieber. No, it's so true. It was great. It was like it was such a great joke that was grounded in realism, and I was just oh, like, yeah. it was like a, it was like a oh fuck, but like a big laugh. I love it too. when they do that. I'll, I will just be like, God damn, you're right, man. Fuck. Oh, I know. Oh man. And he's like, no, nah, man, I don't need that. Like, I'm still. What are you talking about? I just want a Grammy. I'm still popping. They're like, he's like, not for long. He's like, now you're an. OG. He's like, now you're an OG. And he like goes through the whole thing. Yeah, oh, man, it was so fucking funny. Yeah, it's See, so true. We plugged Atlanta now. Everyone should well, watch this show. every episode, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, besides Andor and Atlanta, have you seen anything else? Oh man. Um, let me think. I, I'm trying to think like film wise if I saw anything that I was like. I can like, throw down if you'd like a break. Yes, you go. Oh, you go ahead. Uh, I'm actually watching season two of The White Lotus. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Anyone else familiar? Yeah. Has anyone Plaza. seen it before? I haven't watched it. It's uh, great. Also very dark. It's kind of. Uh, I think I just like really really fucked up comedies. Yeah, I was about to say, but it's so funny too. Yeah, it's, it's so funny. So it's all about this like luxury resort hotel, and the the people that go there are just like the most fucked up. 
um, human, not like they're like assassins, but just like very human, but like way too wealthy for their own good and like take their insecurities out on like the hotel workers. Um, yeah. And so it'll be like a failing marriage, but they're like too rich or too like polite to talk about what is yeah. why their marriage is failing, like the husband cheats or something. And so they're like slowly and slowly like spinning more and more out of control until somebody dies. And they yep. set up the show, the first episode, they're like, oh, there's a bunch of bodies. And so the whole season, you're like, who's going to die? Yeah. Um, and I loved it. a critic wrote that was like, cause season one, you find the same thing is like someone dies and you, you're trying to figure out who it is. It's um, like, it's the writer basically like to me, Mike I've, White. I've, I've joked yeah. about this. I've always been like, I felt like he watched like one of these like new reality television shows where they always go stay at like a, gr- like a luxury location. And like just, it's all people just fucking. Well, he dating. was a finalist on survivor. Was he? Yeah. Mike White oh, was wow. a survivor oh, that makes, finalist. That, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Because he's like, okay, what if they all went there like to date, but then like one of them ended up murdering somebody else. Right. You know I mean? Every time. And it's, it's, yeah. but it's so funny. It skewers everything. And it's like, it's, it can get very political as it'll just skewer. Oh, yeah. It skewers college kids who like just learned the word feminism and are like, you know, schooling their parents on, you know, gender education uh parents who's like you know marriages are falling apart but like trying to pretend like it's okay for their kids sake you know like it's it and the, it's always shot in the most gorgeous locations uh the pre- first season was in shot in hawaii and it's like the most beautiful fucking thing ever and yeah. it's of course it's like an all in like all you the perfect resort you're like how are these people so fucked up they're like not having fun while they're in like a, a gorgeous all inclusive spot. Yeah. Um, but the show over the course of its time is gonna be like the curse of the white lotus because it always happens at a white lotus resort. Which yeah. Is, there's mm. many around the globe. Got it. Fans call them so lotus eaters yeah. after the after the Odyssey. Because the, oh, cool. the lotus eaters are the ones who partake of the lotus fruit and then never leave the shores of that island. But it's like all these people who are just so rich and like have been fattened by their their, you know, social bubbles. You know, they're all their beliefs are like so confident and secure that they, of course, they could never be wrong. And so they just like ruin each other's lives. Oh, man. And it just keeps like spiral. They tighten the screws down every episode until you're like anxious. I just I, I can't talk about I wish you guys had seen season two because had last week's episode. Oh, it was no one dies, but you're just like some two people are uh, Eskimo brothers who should never be Eskimo yep, brothers. Yep. Yeah, you yeah, seen yeah. it? Yeah, I did. and it's deeply uncomfortable. It's I, very as soon as it was happening, I was like, "Those lips, they should not touch." Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. So White Lotus andor. Uh, it's kind of holiday season, so I feel like we haven't been watching a whole lot. I actually, this is a random wreck. Um, I recommend uh, not to compete with our own podcast, but Quiet Part Loud. Oh yeah, I've listened to the first three episodes. Monkey Paw Productions, uh, Jordan Peele's famous production company. Um, they're they're doing a lot of different things, and one of them is this audio per, like play um, that's essentially like a podcast on Spotify, and they're like twenty minute episodes. Each but they're episode. like narrative podcasts, like yeah. they take place. They're they're horror based sort of and like narrative podcasts. Not in the way that someone reads you what's happening. It's an actual like voice actor, fully mixed yeah. uh, clips from radio shows, news feeds, like actor you know it'll it's be a like really cool idea because it harkens back to you know the beginning of a lot of like pre-television these radio like orson welles style like radio shows where you're you're listening with full production and sound yeah. effects and everything it is um, it's what i've always wanted out of a horror podcast like a narrative horror podcast mm-hmm. and i never get because a lot of podcasts like to have people who read the prose and then the actors who read the lines like a lot like right. a basic like table read kind of stuff and it always drives me nuts because they're like trying so hard to give it like tone and inflection and i'm just like this just feels like 
spooky like voiceover work. Yeah. And, yeah. and this is um, incredible. It's mixed media, so it, you just feel like you're getting this story like um, played out to you over over a lot of different methods. But you're like, it's genius, and I am. And it's doing a really great job of capturing post nine eleven. Um, what is it like Islamophobia? There's that one episode, yeah, where uh, particularly it's because it's like that one's set like a decade back, right? Yeah, Two, it's where set it's, in like 2005 or six or something. Yeah, you have that one kid who like I don't want to spoil the story or anything, but yeah, there's a, there's a scene in there where like NYPD cops burst into the room and there's a very like yeah. very tense confrontation. Uh, and it, it does it involves elements of racism having to do with right and it's fascinating like the the central story is that this podcast radio host um, who's kind of an Alex Jones type guy who's just like spewing the most vile rhetoric um, and is ca- he gets canceled and so this is him trying to get his show back by investigating something that he like talked about on his show about three boys disappearing in mm-hmm. I think New Jersey in like the suburbs of New Jersey. And so he's given a microphone and recorder by like a woman who we don't know what the hell she is or sorry, who the hell she is. Um, And we like he goes on this long quest to try and like vindicate himself a little bit. But he's forced to talk to the victims that he created. Like when he like discussed these boys on his show, he like, you know, threw their family under the bus. So all these crazies, all the like really crazy people like tried to like like harass this family and he's forced to go talk to them to figure out what happened to the the boys and then woven in there is a really cool idea of like kind of we've talked about too like that mimetic horror thing of like a a, yeah. s- a specter that is seems to be transmit it's like transmitting itself through through a sound yeah um and so it's just super fascinating because it's like what if he had to confront his own victims and like mm-hmm. get to know them in order to solve a, a mystery that he may or may not have like created it's a really cool series, and the episodes wow. aren't long either. Like they're, they're so they're like, palatable. They're like twenty five minutes. I know or something it, at most. I'm yeah. like I cannot brag about this enough. When we went to LA, I listened the, to a few of them on the airplane. Yeah, like, it's the perfect attention like space yeah. for even regular attention. Like people are like, I don't want to listen to an hour and a half podcast. I'm like, this is twenty five minutes. It's a really cool experiment and, and idea too, because you can like that's the thing about podcasts. You can listen to them while you're doing other stuff. It's like you know, with television and with you know visual media, you have to be sitting down to like be the audience for it. Yeah. But there is something about being able to take this with you like on a walk or like as you're doing chores around the yeah. house or something and it's a uh, it's cool go it's walk a, at sunset and listen to it and you'll be yeah creeped out. you'll be creeped out it, you do voiceover work too i mean it's just a good it's an interesting like case study yeah yeah because okay, he's cool. he's conveying um the space of a scene like that like it's cool that like he has a microphone on him right yeah. in this fictional moment and so a character doesn't so we're hearing that character through his microphone so it's like voiced to sound like it's in the room or they're a certain distance the sound design is really good yeah and he's conveying um like some closeness or like nearness um and not be like being overt it's not like why'd you walk up to me it'll be like it shall go from like like a character will go from sounding really far away to like right up on the mic kind of Oh, that's cool! It's so cool. I'm like obsessed with this. I'm I mean, like, guys, we should have been doing this years ago. The first, like three sentences, y'all said. Yeah, but that's, and even <laughs> you more said Monkey Paw Productions podcast. Yeah, <laughs> like that's all you really like, need to know. Yeah. In. Um. So, like, yeah, Quiet Part Out Loud, really cool. Uh, Andorra White Lotus. You guys got any more eggs? I'm I'm dry for this week because all I watch for Scorsese movies. I, so. If you just want something <laughs> that's way way less cerebral, like Run and Gun, fun. Um, Echo Three on Apple TV. I started. It's really good. It's uh, written by the guy that wrote um, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, cool. nice. Um, which I love both those movies. So that's why I kind of signed up for it. And it's about uh, it's about the, this guy, uh, or it's about three people. It's about a guy and his wife, and then also the guy's wife's brother. Um, and she basically is going down to uh, like South America to do like uh, 
scientific experiments on like plants to see like like hallucinogenics like what's good for the human brain and Hell things yeah. like that you know things like that I'm all about it. um but she gets taken by uh like colombian rebels and things like that and it's about them essentially going to rescue her but about like the real-time logistics and like difficulties that would go into actually doing that but they're but they're spec ops guys so they're right. bad, they're badasses you know you got to have that badassery added in there but it's uh you know it's it's pretty cut and dry, but it's it's fun. It's edge your seat shit for sure. It's yeah. really it's really cool. If you want some run and gun fun, Echo Three. Hell cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. I saw a Creature from the Black Lagoon. I loved it. <laughs> the original. It's actually really good. It, people are like, oh, black and white movies. I'm like, they're uh, an no, hour dude. fifteen minutes. Like, if you think you hate long movies, you should go just watch all old black and white movies because they're very very short. There, I actually there do may have, be a Monster Mash miniseries on our on the I horizon. May or may not have yeah. put that. I know. On I, your schedule. <laughs> I saw you adding stuff. I was like, I was like, awesome, cool. Yeah. Was adding stuff. One that I like specifically want you both to watch. I'm in. Done. Um, <laughs> have, have y'all ever heard of? Because actually, ironically, Echo Three made me think of this. But one of the best shows that I've seen over the last like three years is called Zero Zero Zero. Have y'all heard of this? Mm-mm. It's on no. Amazon Prime. I don't think it got a lot of like viewer traffic, which is probably why it never will get a second season. But basically what it is, is it's a show about, th- it's like it examines the drug trade through three different perspectives, mm. which is the providers, the buyers, and then the intermediaries. And it's, it just does this whole, it's like Sicario, if Sicario, like the lens, like went outward towards like, like a global aspect. Like I mean, a cartel lens, Sicario. Yes. And it's like, it's, it's a, such a multifaceted show. It's so well written, so well acted. I mean, there's so many people in there that are like new faces that I hadn't seen that are incredible actors. Like it, I, I want you both to watch it. It's only about like oh, yeah. eight or nine episodes. It's only one season. I don't think it's going to get a second season, but like, it's one of the best things I've seen on Amazon. Like okay. it's, it's a little like hidden cherry in their, in their trove of shows that yeah, like yeah, I yeah. try to put everybody on. Cause it's just, it's, I mean, it looks like it's filmed like, you know, Roger Deakins filmed it like, you know, nice. It's, it it's looks like fan. a masterwork. Yeah, it's it honestly looks and feels like, like every a frame of picture masterpiece. Like yeah. it's it's a great show. Wow, highly recommend it. Also, shout out if you have, if you've ever listened to Team Deacons, go listen to that podcast too. If you want to hear Roger Deacons and his wife like talk about just like interview people, and it's yeah. it's a fucking that's a great podcast to listen to as well. Ooh, um, that, yeah. So this week we or we watched Shutter Island for our psychological horror series. Uh, there's a couple of things that are option for being next week's episode. Do you do you want to guess which one it is? Um, I'll I, tell you which one it is. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> knows I don't know. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna do Mulholland Drive. Oh, Ooh. very nice. Yeah, so we're gonna tackle that one uh, for our next installment a of Psych Horror. Lynch, baby. Uh, it's gonna be a fun one. I'm excited. Oh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> this podcast has a uh, Instagram. If you go want to go follow it, it's at uh, Scary Sunday Scaries. Uh, there's also a Patreon page for this podcast, uh, Patreon.com/slash/ScarySundaysScaries, uh, where for as little as a dollar you can support the podcast and get early access to episodes, as well as join in on community posts with all the other hosts and me. Uh, if you would like to follow me personally, I'm at Trav the Guy. Uh, I'm at DG underscore Pappas. And Blake Blair does not have social media. Have social That's media. probably smart. Yeah. At the current time, I'm I'm teasing the idea of getting a professional Instagram at some point in the future. So that may, that may be coming. But, but you can go okay. look up on IMDb, yeah, Blake on IMDb. Blair, and uh, look for his uh, newest Click stuff that's coming out. Like on IMDb? I don't know yes, if there's please, an option to support please. people. They, they, have like, they have like some rating system. They really? for like oh, this. yeah, they they're, do. They're, they're, they have this, I'll make, boost you. Make, yeah, make my star meter grow up, people. There we go. Absolutely. Yeah, as as far as the yes, SEO please. goes, just keep Googling his name and maybe it'll... Uh, <laughs> yes, please do. Yes. Uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out with us, guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. Come back next week from Holland Drive. Hell yeah. Bye. Bye.
Sunday Scaries.